0: Hi, thanks for tuning in to High on Horror. I'm Drew. And I'm
1: John. This episode and every future episode is dedicated to all the horror hounds and smokers out there who want to expand their knowledge of the genre and have a good time.
0: Preach, brother. (laughs) Today we're covering the dark and heavy movie Slapface. Slapface is about a boy who befriends a witch amongst being constantly bullied at school and abused by his older brother at home. It's a powerful film that strikes a chord in the viewer of remorse and sadness, but also is a good, haunting, tragic horror movie. We're joined today by the director Jeremiah Kipp, who's going to talk with us about everything from the origin of the film all the way through to its execution. All that and more today on High High on on horror. Horror. Interviews, reviews, and the latest news all rolled into one. Let's give it up to our editor, Josh, who made that awesome theme song for us that you just heard. He, uh, produces and edits this show every week and he does not get enough credit. He definitely saved our asses last week.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there was a lot. I don't know if it seems like every couple months there, all of a sudden there's something quirky. that pops up, but he finds a way to fix it. And, uh, and and we'll plug his album for us, Josh. Because you did a good job, we'll plug the album for you. <laughs> uh, you can check it out at HensleySound.bandcamp.com. Again, that's Hensley Sound, H-E-N-S-L-E-Y, HensleySound.bandcamp.com.
0: So we're here to talk about Slapface today. Uh, that movie really kicks you in the taint, doesn't it?
1: Oh yeah, it's uh it's definitely heavy.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a deep, dark, heavy movie. I'm looking forward to speaking with Jeremiah about it, actually. But uh, but first, before we get into all that dark shit, I'm going to need to smoke. So it's uh, time for Strain Wreck. Choo-choo, motherfucker. The segment of our show where we discuss which strain we're getting wrecked on in each episode. All right, man. So, John, you brought the goodies for us, right? What do you have for us today?
1: Um, I didn't have anything with a name. I'm sure Josh is annoyed. I'm making all kinds of noise with trees and shit. He always yells at us about that shit. Um, I don't have a name one from a dispensary. Uh, I picked it up from uh, from somebody off the streets. <laughs> i i call this the snickle fritz uh, you got he's that you see pineapple express yeah, yeah he's yeah, like yeah. he's not getting the, he's not getting pineapple express he's getting snickle Fritz.
0: or in delaware it's known as that street loud
1: <laughs> i feel like everything somebody be like what do you got oh it's headband or sour
0: d blue cheese <laughs> a blue dream
1: blue g ge- yeah blue dream and girl scout cookies i feel like was what. They named, like, everything. I'm like, why does this taste different than the other headband (laughs) I
0: had last week? You never know what's what. So, uh... I'm
1: gonna spark this blunt, though.
0: Yeah, man, definitely. So, uh, the Evil Dead game. uh, To you listeners out there who are playing, let us know what you think. I'm seeing mixed things online. Uh, but it was uh i just i wanted to bring up that that bitch sold over five hundred thousand copies in its first week man people are fucking buying that game the evil dead i think people underestimate the evil dead like for as popular as it is as many people that bought that game you'd think there would be a lot more evil dead movies you know what i mean
1: yeah yeah with the game like yeah same thing i've just been uh seeing mixed reviews i've seen people (coughs) i was trying to hold that one in (laughs) Uh, but I've seen people where they're like, it's too hard.
0: <laughs>
1: that's a hell of a one to stop on. That's what she said.
0: <laughs>
1: but then I saw other people that they're like, this game's fun as hell. But the one thing I do see is everybody's bitching that the multiplayer is kind of broken.
0: Uh, see, I didn't see that. What I saw was that the uh, the the... Before you have a weapon, basically they said like you're just like flailing your arms in front of you, like the way that your fight is basically flailing your arms in front of you, hoping to like punch a deadite or something. I
1: saw something that we were probably one of our same groups we're in, but um, I still, the want, to I still the fr- want to play
0: it though. I will, oh yeah, I will
1: play it. I will buy it. Eventually. And it's only what forty bucks or something. Yeah, um, which was the same as the Friday the Thirteenth one. Yeah, yep. And the Friday the Thirteenth one. Good God, we had vincent de on we talked a little bit about it the multiplayer in the beginning of that was so broken because you could just kill your own team and shit yeah. it was so bad but the lawsuit kind of hurt that but there was some some nights i had a couple people that i used to write for like a sports blog with and we would just put like four or five hours a night into just playing that it was so much fun I, ho- I hope they come out with the second one now that maybe the lawsuits getting resolved. But
0: yeah, I would I would hope so, man. I mean, but well, the Evil well, Dead
1: one, I'm kind of hoping it, maybe that goes the same way. They'll get the multiplayer fixed out. I assume, like uh, Gun Media, it's not a big studio working on it. If I I don't I don't even remember who put it out. Do you?
0: No, I said it in prior episode, but no, I don't remember now. But uh, no, it's 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 crazy because I actually heard the opposite of you. I heard that the Friday the Thirteenth lawsuit is like. <laughs> far from over i thought all that shit got decided right well that's i I don't know like i guess i guess i thought
1: thought they gave the rights back to for the original to victor Miller. i don't
0: don't know know. well now they're saying apparently that it's still like you know they're still you know balls deep in, in in the lawsuit about the rights and everything so i don't know i don't know who's right anymore because it's just it's just it just doesn't seem to end so uh you listeners out there if you guys are up to speed and know your research let us know who's right uh is this fucking friday the 13th lawsuit about over with or are we just you know are we just getting started
1: uh i wanted to say the evil dead game it's made by saber interactive
0: that was it saber yes they've I re- yes. uh
1: they've, they've released the game world war z
0: um i did not play that no me neither
1: nba playgrounds i played which was fun wwe 2k battlegrounds
0: which you've played right or battlegrounds isn't that the exaggerated version of the yeah the, the big but chunky like it was still, it was like, still fun the, yeah i remember like you do like a rock bottom on somebody and they do like four They're front a decent flips. company yeah
1: and uh i think the other thing we want to talk about uh we saw from our friends on instagram at leppy laddie uh we're getting a leprechaun pop final
0: yeah that's a good page it's de- dedicated to just the leprechaun series both warwick davis and lyndon porco yeah i almost said i almost forgot his last name for a second <laughs> but i didn't
1: i mean i i'd say i probably like the leprechaun series probably a little more than you though
0: yeah i mean i i, <laughs> I mean I, I
1: still like the one in space dude no, it's, man. Our, it's so no. bad but i love it
0: no it's like uh i i don't know man it's the first film is good and the second one sucked, the third one was alright, and then after that I didn't like anything until, you know... Um, I got you to like three, right? Until Lyndon uh, Porco came along. What's that? I got you to like the third one, right? Yeah. Yeah, you Damn, both... You is, well, I, was, I will say... Halloween hold on, three? no, no, no. You, you, Leprechaun 3. You actually... Here's the deal. Growing up, I watched the first Leprechaun a lot. But I saw the second one as well when I was younger, and I hated it. I thought it was terrible, I... So don't I don't hate I, it,
1: but I, it... It wasn't. I'll be honest, I hardly ever watched the second
0: one. Well, I gave up on it. After that, I figured, oh, this series was like a one and done. The first one was good. The second one was just a dramatic drop. So I caught it quits. It wasn't until St. Patrick's Day several years ago that we came over that you were like, yo, like watch the third one. So I watched it. I broke down. I watched it. And by that point, by the way, I had really given up, because after I had give, given up, they had made, like, however many fucking more sequels, <laughs> yeah. and I was like, I was, but you told me to watch three, and I did, I liked it, so I went out, and I bought, like, a, a whole pack of all the movies, and I watched all of them, that and pack was I was cheap, like, I know. Because I bought it, too. Yeah, and I just, I was like, yeah, um, three was good, but the rest of I mean, there's there's had Leprechaun in the hood, you know. Uh, I a, love that one, A friend with weed is a friend indeed. Right? You know, like, so there, That should I mean, be the
1: most high on horror Leprechaun.
0: Yeah, entry. I, I, we should have Warwick Davis as Leprechaun <laughs> from that movie in studio for an interview. Could you that imagine awesome. that A Leprechaun as the interview? In and ice Tea. <laughs> no, we'd just be intimidated the whole time.
1: Nah, I would. <laughs> we need. We need. I. feel like ice Tea would have to be in person because we got to smoke with them.
0: I don't even know if he even smokes anymore. Dude, we smoked some good weed. I Ever
1: since he joined the SVU,
0: well, I guarantee you that he uh, he would probably be shitting all over our weed. We got some good weed. Yeah. And he'd come in here just spend like, put like that shit away. Bitches. Put that shit away. We rolling with my shit. Be like, yes, sir. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, but also
1: Lepi Laddie, and I'm in full support. Uh, I don't know if they came up with the petition or not, but there's one on Change.org to have Neca make an ultimate leprechaun.
0: I mean, that would be awesome. Like you, got,
1: you would have to display it next to the Chucky, right?
0: Yeah, I was just going to say, um, a company that might have the balls to do it right now is Trick or Treat Studios. They're the ones that did the Chucky. I mean, that Chucky... is a legit like reproduction like a legit like reproduction of what was done in the movie like that is not a bootleg like that is 100% passes and screen accurate in every aspect even the fucking coveralls to the stripes on the shirt i remember that you could legit tell bootlegs from the non-bootlegs due to the stripes on the shirt because it was a specific pattern and trick-or-treat studios got that shit right and uh they're doing like seven inch figures they're doing pumpkin head figures now um yeah i think they would probably be willing to do it either and they do 12 inch figures i mean i'm gonna be straight you know i would seeing as how they did a chucky and everything i think it'd be really fucking cool if they did like a 1-1 scale like little person size like warwick davis leprechaun that would probably be scary as shit but i'd buy it
1: yeah i mean i want i want both i want a Linda porco and a, uh Warwick,
0: come on, both. I like, I like, uh, see, I've, I've thought about it over time. And I think that I, I definitely prefer Warwick's, uh, performance over Linden's, but I do think that I thought Linden's, uh, his outfit, his like old looking costume, I thought was cooler looking like outfit for outfit. I thought that, uh, Linden's got him beat with the, uh, with the drip. You know what I mean? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't think you can beat Leprechaun one. But then if I had to pick another one, it would it would have to be Leprechaun Returns cuz I do like that outfit. Same and then 3.
0: I <sighs> would well, we'll do 3 after that.
1: But uh Yeah, like I definitely hope they make one. But when uh,
0: you said they were doing pop vinyls right? There's 3. There's the Amazon exclusive, NFYE an exclusive and a regular. I think the Amazon glows in the dark, if I'm correct. And he has a like, little uh damage on his face or spirals on his face or something but the actual pop vinyl i believe the exclusive one that like, glows in the dark or something from amazon or fya
1: there's yeah i see the splattered one i do like yeah. that one uh <coughs> big apple collectibles is sell that glow in the dark one damn dude that that thing's 25 from
0: them I'd get it now but get it now you think 25 is bad wait till it's like sold out and people are trying oh to get it i didn't even
1: notice he has a little flashlight that's why he's glowing in the dark i didn't know that either no yeah shit. there's a little flashlight in his hand that shit's hilarious <laughs> we need we need we need a bigger screen that i could like share what i'm looking at to like
0: <laughs> we need a leprechaun we need one of him I on need, i need stick. one of each we need one of him on the pogo stick, and we need one of him in the car. Oh, the pogo stick, man, that one would be great. That scene scared the shit out of me growing up.
1: I want one of them, like, one of, one of them, I mean, I feel like they should have did more stuff with the
0: hands. Like, like you should have did one of them, like, shining stuff. Oh, my God, yeah. Like, Dude, do you hear what happened to my voice? After that last hit, I went full Vin Diesel. <laughs> <laughs> I don't Family? Know. My, <laughs> my voice got real deep all of a sudden after that hit. I don't, I don't know, maybe I be a little Sylvester Stallone here, I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know if that sounded like Stallone. Anyway, I'm trying.
1: I'm trying to see. I don't know that the glow in the dark one's exclusive because I keep seeing all these websites. Okay. Okay. I mean, maybe it is in store, but like online, I just keep seeing all these different, different ones.
0: Either way, it's pretty fucking cool looking, and it's been. Yeah, a-
1: and I didn't. I didn't know they were doing the three until you. Until you just mentioned, them, and then I had to look that shit up.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I plan on buying one now. Uh, let's get an art the clown one done. I I think they should they should do it. David Damian Leone makes his own little Funko looking that you can buy at his table. Yeah, those things are awesome. Yeah, but I mean, like, let's see Funko do it. I think an art from uh, art the clown from Funko would be pretty badass.
1: Would they do it though?
0: I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I an mean, American Werewolf in London would be nice though to see them do the actual <laughs> the actual werewolf. That'd be pretty funny. Or like, could you imagine if they did a mid transformation? <laughs> like that model I have over there of David Kessler all on his knees. That'd be a funny ass pop pop vinyls look funny. You know what I mean? They're very funny depending on uh well they look like, funny. Like no even the Michael
1: what. Myers and Jason ones, like Jason looks kind of half sad.
0: <laughs> exactly. So does Leatherface and the funniest one that I have is the Herschel with one leg from The Walking Dead. He <laughs> I just got looks- the Chucky cart. That's the one I got autographed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just talking about pop vinyls. Now. I know,
1: dude. We I have way too many. But you know what series they they need to make, just a series of? What's that? TV show
0: Dexter. Dude, I thought that before, man. You know, and I recently, I don't know if you ever I watched. I want an
1: Angel. I want yes. a Masuka. I want I want, uh, I want a
0: Trinity Killer. <laughs> Ooh, I Trinity want a Harry Kill. and a Deb and a Dex. um, But, uh, yeah, no, that's uh, actually, Dokes. that was such a good idea that I lost my train of thought on what I was going to say. So, yeah, Dexter would be, that that would be an awesome line of figures for sure pop vinyls or whatever
1: all right well now uh i think it's time to move into horror history and uh we'll get to slap face eventually we promise <laughs> we won't we, we won't talk too long but uh first let's take a second to uh respect some classics this week in horror history so this week for horror history, uh, let's start out. Or 19- his, horror his <laughs> 1981
0: dead and buried. Yeah, man. Uh, dead and buried that movie. Uh, Good movie. Great underrated zombie movie starring a young Robert England. This doesn't pull punches. It stabs you right in the eye with a fucking needle. Literally. And uh, that's, you know, it does that and worse. Watch the movie if you haven't seen it mandatory. I believe it's streaming on Shudder. Don't hold me to that, though. Uh, 1983. Uh, we've already talked about this Psycho 2. Yeah, we, I know we talked about this, so we won't go in depth. I know that we talked about this last year on Horror History because I remember you talking about the woman at the end of that who's, uh, who's, uh, Norman's real mom at the end of the film. And you were like, she's a real bitch. And I remember it cracked <laughs> me up. So, uh, yeah, we don't need to cover that one. And I know your thoughts on Norman's mother. Um, but yeah, that is one of the best horror sequels ever.
1: Yeah. Uh, and then 1990, uh, another one we covered wasn't
0: that our like love gone wrong episode i think frankenhooker and and we talked that was on my list i think we mentioned it in last year's horror history and we've talked about it scattered a lot so we
1: forget a lot about what we've talked about
0: we talk about frankenhooker a lot we brought up the gay bartalos on our interview like frank we've never done an episode but frankenhooker's popped in a lot
1: (laughs) yeah that's kind of weird when you think about like movie hey what's the movie you're going to talk about a lot on your podcast oh frankenhooker
0: i love that movie though dude i mean if they I mean, if i heard somebody good. say that i don't have a problem if i heard somebody say we talk about Frank and Hooker a lot i wouldn't be like oh i'm not interested i'd be like oh I'll listen all <laughs> oh, you frankenhooker fans out there Frank and Hooker, just listen to our episodes just on the rare occasion that we might mention it you never know uh
1: 2003 we have wrong turd i mean uh wrong turn start amber heard <laughs> everybody else making the joke we gotta throw one in there <laughs>
0: The only obligatory one obligatory pop culture reference. There you go. Uh you officially dated us. <laughs> We're dated now. Um the only one this is the only one in the series worth watching. That's all yeah, I really say. Much. Uh I remember uh in high school I loved it and it held up, but the movies that followed, man, holy shit. Didn't
1: this like come out around uh Joyride? Yeah. Man, yeah, like, it, all was all that, it was about in that it was in h-
0: that yeah, it was all that like young, sweaty people and wife beaters. <laughs>
1: young sweaty people.
0: And wife beaters. You know, the whole shebang.
1: Crazy truckers. Uh, 2008, The Strangers.
0: One of the best home invasion movies ever made, period. It's still creepy. It's still violent. It still hasn't lost its edge after all these years. And Liv Tyler is still hot.
1: Uh... Have you seen the sequel, Strangers Pray at Night?
0: I did. I thought it was fun, but in no way did I feel like it live it up it the fairly shit on. Well it, like it wasn't it didn't it wasn't nearly as serious of a movie and it was so to me it wasn't it had, nearly it, it as serious. It did good.
1: have Christina Hendricks. I'm a fan of that.
0: If you could pull yourself out of the like out of it trying out of try if you can pull yourself out of expecting the first one from it and just enjoy it as like a fun, senseless slasher with a good soundtrack, you'll have fun. But that first film, that slow burn film Man, that film got under people's skin. I think that's what people wanted, and they got more of an in-your-face slasher. I didn't mind it, but it wasn't the first one. But it, yeah, your girl Christina Hendricks had the name drop, huh?
1: Yeah, I uh, I actually saw that. I did see that in theaters. I thought it was pretty good, and I feel like it got horrible reviews.
0: I didn't. I, never, I don't remember hearing reviews about it. I just remember seeing everybody like posting about it. Kind of yeah. like the Purge. It's kind of like one of those movies that was everywhere, but like I don't really, I didn't really Purge. hear good or bad just something everybody was watching at the time
1: and from 1985 we have a film directed by nobody and produced by a nobody <laughs> never heard of these people ever lamberto bava and dario argenta
0: who who are they never heard of them <laughs> yeah uh also, are they spanish <laughs> they might be uh, italiano i don't know italiano <laughs> um yeah uh, demons also known as demani starring uh garetta Um, it's a pretty, pretty epic name, Goretta Goretta. Uh, but anyway, uh, this and its sequel, Demons 2, was directed by Lamberto Bava, son of Mario Bava, who's the famous Italian filmmaker who's given us gems as, uh, Blood and Black Lace and A Bay of Blood five dollars for an august moon black sabbath black sunday etc that dude was a beast a lot of black yeah and uh, his son lamberto bava didn't have as much of a successful run as his dad but he gave us Dimani, and that's in my top five italian horror films it's one of the it's one of my favorite films ever it's such a fucking blast man and uh he also did the lackluster sequel demons Two, as i mentioned uh but he also directed macabre and a blade in the dark and those are great macabre is about a woman a lot of people don't know about this movie but a macabre is about a woman who sleeps with her husband's head and when she's not sitting oh, on it right? when she's not sitting on his face she's putting his head in the freezer uh
1: okay
0: yep <laughs> i don't really, really
1: know how to <laughs> how to add to that
0: knowledge nug about demons uh the guy in the mask giving out the golden ticket is director mikhail so, so i always mess his last name up sovi so, sovi uh, he is Suave? I always mess his name up, man. I am terrible with names. Well, hey. uh, well uh, he directed the church, and yeah, the which sect. was
1: completely rewritten as a, from a third movie.
0: <laughs> and uh, Delamore, uh, or Cemetery Man, and of course his masterpiece, Stage Fright, uh, which has a guy in an owl mask offing people with an axe and shit.
1: I mean, I'm, they're all bloody.
0: That's right. <laughs> it's
1: the only way it, Italian horror gets it
0: amen fuck yeah well yeah um yeah like i guess you know we talked about frankenhooker on a bunch of episodes and psycho too so yeah that about so go back and it. listen i don't think there's any godzilla movies i need to surprise you with no this but week. i
1: say you got a godzilla book just sitting on the shelf directly <laughs> in my eyeline like straight ahead
0: godzilla will always be around in one way or another um behind the scenes Gamora's. in the scenes <laughs> Camera is better. Oh, no. Um, all right. Well, uh, now let's move on to Puff Puff Ask, the segment of our show where you listeners send us in questions through social media at High on Horror 420 or email at High on Horror 420 at gmail.com. Yeah, man. Puff, puff, okay, so Lily from New York uh messaged us on Instagram and New she York, said. York. She asks, uh, my husband is throwing a three-movie marathon in our backyard this summer using our projector. We're thinking about having some family and friends over. There won't be kids but adults and a lot of drugs and alcohol. A lot of
1: drugs? Y'all doing ketamine? Like, I <laughs> mean a lot of drugs. I mean, I mean you want to do some extra more than weed. I ain't going to judge you, but... I feel like that's just a weird way to say it. it's just like there's a lot of drugs. Why did you go to <laughs> ketamine? I, I mean, they're saying a lot of drugs, so I'm saying like <laughs> how far are you going? Is <laughs> you going down a K-hole?
0: Well, there's a reason I didn't include a last name in this. <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> yeah, I'm not trying to get Lily in trouble. Um anyway, uh so yeah, um <laughs> what was I uh, there won't be uh kids but adults and a lot of drugs and alcohol. What would you recommend? I trust asking you guys because you guys have a great sense of humor and I feel like you'd know the perfect movies for a scenario like this. We love listening to your show. Uh thank you, Lily. Again, that was that's thank you for listening. Um The, uh, the drug comment, Johnny, you got in my <laughs> head with the ketamine thing. Uh <laughs> I'm just like damn. I kind of want to be there. I want to know this. Like, kind of like I, we might have to what? roll there. Are we, we invited to... to this party? That's what i Is this an invite? Yeah, uh, New
1: York. It was only two two hours away. I could be there. New York. <laughs> um, <laughs> I feel like my answers. I mean, if you ain't ready, I could jump. No, yeah,
0: yeah. I got. Uh, I was gonna say. Um, I would buy for my. My question is: Is there a pool? Who's we saying backyard and it's got we got a projector, so if there's a pool, then Jaws. Definitely Jaws.
1: I didn't even think about that. If
0: not, I'd go total slasher camp with it. Like I'd say Cheerleader Camp, Sleepaway Camp, and the burning to edge off that cheese of the last two. But if there's a pool, I'd say Jaws, Piranha, and I'm gonna hit you with a Godzilla movie. Oh,
1: geez.
0: Just not the ninety eight one.
1: You mean the best one I ever made? No. Mine are <laughs> I don't know. It's I mean, I feel like you went a little better with the Slashers. I feel like mine, just to get everybody good. I didn't even think about a pool, so there's no pool scenario in mine.
0: Texas tub? Chainsaw Massacre.
1: Tub? I feel like that's a good one to throw yeah. up on a projector.
0: Yeah, that is a good one.
1: Uh, Friday the 13th. You can go with the original three. Or, or, I'm sorry, the original. The original through six minus five. <laughs> <laughs> one through four and six. <laughs> Yeah, basically, I feel like that's another good one. And then I was, I don't know, I was struggling for a third one. I want to get like the outdoor feel because you're sitting outside. so like, I mean, Texas those are
0: two Ch- good choices though. Texas Chainsaw is definitely the good. other one.
1: I thought like I feel like if you're ha- showing it out in the backyard, maybe it's a bigger backyard. Maybe there's some trees in the yard. Go with a Halloween.
0: Yeah, yeah, or like uh, uh what about setting a projector up in the middle of the woods and watching Blair Witch? Uh,
1: I didn't care for Blair Witch. I,
0: didn't, I was going to say, it didn't scare me. So, I mean, it, it, in theory, that's a cool idea, but I would be sitting there just bored. I by, feel like and, if we were keeping stone.
1: in the woods, we're watching Friday the
0: 13th. Yeah, I, or, or I think Sleepaway Camp would probably yeah, go into that's the another mix good as well. One. Yeah.
1: And uh, so I guess uh, we'll get on to our second question here. Kelly from California asks, I've tried to get my sons to watch the old Goosebumps shows with me, and they don't find it scary. They like the Haunted Mask episode, but that's it. Uh, They don't find it scary, and that's disheartening because I grew up with that show, and there were many episodes that scared the shit out of me and my sisters. So what would you suggest for a seven- and nine-year-old to watch? It might scare them, but not be too much for them.
0: Uh, That's kind of a hard question.
1: Goosebumps? I feel like... uh, Like, I wasn't... I feel like I was probably 11 and 12, somewhere around there, when those started coming on Fox, so... I remember reading the books, but the show was like never scary to me.
0: Yeah, I, the one uh, don't look in the I don't know, oh, dude. What's the one with the plant hand in the basement? i have seen the book cover in my head. You know the one with it's. Uh, I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, it, I don't the, remember yeah any that of those one like the, Night
1: of the <laughs> Living Dummy. I think the only one I remember.
0: Both yeah, the basement one with like the Swamp Thing Dad and uh, Swamp Thing Dad <laughs> and uh, the um the Haunted Mask. I always thought were good, but yeah, the, the, the Like I agree, I don't think any of them scared me either, even back then. And for a seven- or nine-year-old, it really
1: depends on the kid. Because I know, like, seven- and nine-year-olds that are, like, terrified of anything. So it's really, like, I think all, really all dependent on the kid. Yeah. If you have a kid, well, I mean, if they're saying they don't find it scary, I mean, you could always go with, like, the TV edits of a lot of slasher movies.
0: Or I think Terrifier's on Netflix. Maybe, uh, you know, man, maybe they're I, ready I, oh, for that. That's, I don't <laughs> No, know. I'm fucking around. Don't listen to me. I'm, that was terrible. Maybe advice. Sallow oh god that was terrible advice um yeah uh but
1: I feel like any of the eighty slashers would work yeah like I, I feel
0: like you just have to shield their eyes from some titties that's all
1: well like I said go 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 with like the edited versions like, like you can watch on like TV TV
0: versions that's not a bad idea
1: like an easy one I feel like Nightmare on Elm Street
0: yeah yeah unless
1: they're there one that's scared easy then I would probably not go with that one but yeah. these are kids that's saying that they don't really find like goosebumps scary. So I feel like that'd be
0: a good one for them. Wait, so I mean that, that's that's actually a good idea. Nightmare on Elm Street would probably scare the shit out of them. But I'm gonna take a second before I make my answer, or give my answer. I wanted to bring something up to you. You have stated before that uh, Heather Langenkamp is your scream queen, right? Like she's yeah. your favorite. it's yeah. like of all the scream queens, she's your favorite. Well, I actually had like a, a revelation, and I don't know. Was big of a fan of these all of the, these slasher films and this particular series of She's Not a slasher, in a slasher film, but it is a horror film, and she is a scream queen. Um, I don't know why, like this person never dawned on me before as someone of like you know Barbara Crampton. First of all, is like Barbara. Don't call me scream queen. Scream queen Crampton. So I'm not gonna call her a scream queen. She's apparently above that. Whatever. If that's what you mm-hmm. have. That's how you feel. Okay. But my scream queen my pick is ashley lawrence who plays kirsty at hellraiser that's a good choice i, I thought of that i was like oh that's a pretty good one right that yeah, would be she, my she was queen.
1: in in the good ones
0: yeah <laughs> pretty much the two out of the like 27 <laughs> it feels like there's bro you remember
1: when i told you i said you know what i've never watched the hellraiser series i think i'm gonna give it a go and you just said lol they get bad Dude, and then yeah. I watched one, well, I watched one for years, and I finally got around to watching two, and I was like, damn, two's, two's like right on par with the first one. It's really good. And then I, I, before watching three, I didn't know anything about it. You said you didn't like it, and I read mixed reviews. Some people loved it, some people <laughs> hate it. I don't no offense i don't know how anybody liked that movie (laughs) i I stopped my hellraiser quest there i said this is it i said, because you stopped it on one of the ones that people still consider to be good yeah and (sighs) then i heard that it got much worse and i'm like if it's already this bad like i don't want to be here (laughs) like for this like i'm good i don't want to be here when it goes
0: to space or touches up on virtual reality one of the titles that fucking kills me bro is uh it's called hellraiser deader
1: I haven't seen that one because I've like, seen
0: some ridiculous ones. Dead like hell on like earth? What the s- fuck? I, I, did they make that word up? I've never heard of like anybody actually using that in a real, like literal term. Like, yeah, well, you know, that person's dead, but that person deader. It sounds like <laughs> something a redneck would say. Like, it doesn't sound like something that doesn't seem like a word, and that's actually the title of a Hellraiser movie. I was deader. not
1: familiar with that one. I thought I had heard all of them.
0: It's it's this. The title that makes you kind of question it, but anyway. Uh, sorry Kelly yeah your name was Kelly sorry Kelly let me answer your question. Uh, Hellraiser
1: would not be appropriate for a seven or nine year old <laughs>
0: no <laughs> um, I would say uh, the easiest question the easiest answer to your question would be uh, make them watch the new Jack Black Goosebumps movies those might do it you know and uh, also try the house with the clock on its walls you know I'm fucked up but I say let them watch Antlers as well it's a bit violent but with a parent, it's fine. I think that'll scare them and it won't do any like real damage to them in regards to scaring them. It shouldn't traumatize them and they won't find any cheese in that. Friday
1: 13th, part six.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, That's a good one. That's a good one, dude.
1: Halloween three.
0: I mean, you got Tom Atkins doing some dicking. He's, yeah. He's, you know, never mind. Never mind. Tom Atkins fucks in that movie, so I mean, we can't. Tom
1: Atkins always gonna fuck.
0: <laughs> All right, so hold on. Spe- <laughs> Speaking of the house with the clock in its walls, they should totally do a porn parody of that. Like, <laughs> I knew you were like, say it. like a massive glory hole sesh. Like the whole, the like the whole house, it just has a like, whole. <laughs> Stop! Let me give you the premise. Hold on. <laughs> like the house, right? It has all these fucking glory holes. It's like the house with the cock in its walls. You got to kind of like work past the cocks to get upstairs. <laughs> and even when you get the cock, even when you get upstairs and you're like safe. You got cocks like thumping on your wall Like hey I am I next <laughs> wall.
1: Jesus Christ I don't I, I don't even know how I go back to Finish
0: answering this question I bet you Ava Adams would start in that <laughs> She'd be up for it he didn't scroll on TikTok or whatever. I don't know, man. I don't know. The house with the cock in its walls. Watch, somebody's gonna take that idea now and I'm gonna be like, man, I could have been a rich man. <laughs> if I just had market. a mansion with like fifty glory holes in the walls. So like you
1: got a lot of directing to do.
0: You got a lot of mopping to do.
1: I'm not I'm not involved in this. <laughs> Did you mop it up, dog? hell I am. That's a Josh job. Oh, oh All shit.
0: Alright, I
1: think uh It is 100% time to move on (laughs) to our movie discussion of Slapface.
0: Alright, so before we talk about Slapface, I want to take a moment and be serious here. Um, Before we get started, I just wanted to say something. Bear with me. Um, So... It's hard to track and find down the first film in which children were abused. I've tried. But thinking back on it, if you're a film guy and watch black and white movies, think back at how many movies had rude and abusive parents in them, right? Like, it's natural to be used to being treated like an asshole. Abusive parents or siblings or boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, whatever. It's engraved in us, ingrained in us, to tolerate this abuse and excuse it. Some people are open about their dysfunction and others hide it and know it's something to be ashamed of, but accept it for whatever reason. Abuse is ingrained in us from birth in some sort of another. Um, Think about it. Everyone knows someone with you know, who's living in, everyone knows someone who's living with some sort of abuse in their household. There we go. I got that out. Um, I bet you listeners out there, I bet that you can count more people that you know who are from abusive households or relationships than you can people, you know, who have a hundred dollars to their name. I know I can. Um, there's a lot of movies about fathers physically abusing and sexually abusing their children, but there aren't as many movies about fathers committing filicide as there are women. Filicide is what it's called when a parent murders their own child, not to be confused with prolicide, which is a term for someone else killing someone else's child, not their own. Uh, so anyway, men beat and molest kids in movies and women kill them. Apparently, um, there's a ton of movies about mothers murdering their children, Uh, Just think about like Nicole Kidman's uh, the movie The Others from 2001 where like the twist was that she had killed her kids and committed suicide. Anyway, back to my point. Uh, Just think about dysfunctional families. My family was dysfunctional. My wife's was, as was my friends. A lot of my friends had dysfunctional families as well. We're all dysfunctional. No one is normal. Um, So it only makes sense that Dysfunction leaks, leaked its way into movies, right? Movies about child abuse are in the lifeblood of cinema. And you have movies like Flowers in the Attic and Casadaga, not Casablanca. Um, Mommy Dearest, Sleepers, The Devil's Backbone, The Girl Next Door, the Finnish horror movie Hatching that I reviewed on Instagram, The Color Purple, my voice is doing that Vin Diesel thing again, um, *Solo*, uh, that's another one. And one that really hits home for me is... Uh, it's, it's really hard to watch. One that I couldn't relate to in a lot of ways is called This Boy's Life, starring Leo Decat and Robert De Niro. And uh, the thing is, John, I don't know how much acting De Niro had to do in this movie because he is a fucking asshole.
1: Uh, yeah, I've heard things about De Niro.
0: Yeah, well, he plays an abusive stepfather and he puts Leo through hell and uh, it's hard to watch. It really is. It breaks my heart. You know, and a lot of people don't talk about this movie. It kind of fell off the radar after it landed in the 90s. I don't know. Anyway, Carrie is another one. Stephen King really had uh, a way of always ingraining child abuse into his films, like Dolores Claiborne and that asshole dad in Silver Bullet who gets killed in the oh, shed. Yeah. You know, the one watching wrestling, like, bust his chops. You know, uh, <laughs> his wrestling gets interrupted. I mean, I'd be upset too if my wrestling program was interrupted. You know what I mean? But that's besides the point. Um, Slingblade, Maniac Cop. Uh, I'm sorry, not Maniac Cop, Maniac. Psycho, the Babadook, and more recently Antlers, which touched up on child abuse, but also did the complete backflip of actually letting the monster be the fucking monster, right? A Wendigo. After Babadook, the monster is a person or people now. We're the real monsters. We get it. Antlers brought us back to a real monster movie, and I appreciate the shit out of that. Uh, however, in the vein of the monster being a human and a metaphor. That all depends on how you, the viewer, interpret the ending of the film we're here to talk about today. Slapface. It's up to you to decide: is this mon- is this a monster movie, or is this all in this kid's head? Right? It's not abusive parents. It's sibling bullying. It's an older brother burdened by the task of raising his fucked up younger brother. Slapface was a short film that Jeremiah Kit made in 2018. Jeremiah made a lot of short films starting when he was young, when he was a young adult. And between making short films, he directed a few episodes of a TV show called In Fear. He didn't make a feature film until The Sadist in 2015, starring Tom Savini. Uh well once presented the opportunity to turn his short film Slap Face into a feature film, Jeremiah jumped on it and he kicked its ass. I think the people who grew up in Broken Homes will feel closer to this movie than those that didn't, but anyone and everyone watching understands and sympathizes. The film stars Mike Manning from MTV's Teen Wolf and the older brother Tom uh is the I'm sorry. Uh <clears throat> the film stars Mike Manning from MTV's Teen Wolf as the older brother Tom and August maturo uh he was in the nun and he plays lucas watch Slapface, the nun sucked and they're doing another one for some reason okay john anyway take us through the movie
1: yeah Slapface, uh, like you said uh, was a feature-length adaptation of the 2017 short film of the same name and uh debuted um in festivals in 2021 and uh lucas he's a loner kid he lives with his brother tom Played by Mike Manning and August Maturo, like he said, played Lucas. Uh, their mother had previously died, and they live in a rundown home. Uh, Tom tries to be the adult figure Lucas needs at times, but he's still growing himself. Uh, for example, the title of the film "Slap Face." I don't think that's the best way to go about discipline. <laughs> I mean, that's just me. No, you're right. And uh, Lucas, he likes to play in the woods by his house, and the only only interaction he really has with anyone else is a group of female bullies. Uh, Sisters Donna and Rose, played by Bianca, and I'm going to mess this up, Chiara, the Ambrosia, respectively. And the third bully, Mariah, is played by Mirabelle Lee. And it's kind of a weird dynamic because when Lucas isn't there, the two sisters bully Mariah. When Mariah is with Lucas... By himself they're kind of like boyfriend girlfriend but then when mariah is with the girls then she joins in with
0: bullying and lucas yeah totally
1: and uh one day in the woods lucas comes across a witch played by lucas Hassel. uh the two form a very strange friendship and uh lucas starts to withdraw from his interactions with everyone else and uh just hangs with his best pal the witch
0: <laughs> yeah I mean that's that's a good way of summing it up hands with his best pal the witch,
1: and uh they kind of uh i mean the witch kind of offers protection to Lucas and they just kind of offer friendship to each other
0: yeah absolutely and I like how she has like toys on her belt. you notice that, yeah. you notice that she's like she's so desperate for a friend that she has toys on her belt to like bait kids in almost like uh if uh if this were a dude that'd be a totally different movie. <laughs>
1: yeah probably but uh i also really like the design of the witch as well
0: yeah absolutely i agree creepy very very creepy it's not
1: and it's not something i've seen before like i've never seen a witch it looks like that
0: yeah i would would like like
1: very top heavy and then kind of like wispy
0: at the bottom kind of had like reminded me of lord of the rings almost yeah almost you know
1: but uh it's yeah, I don't want to go too much further into the story. I feel like that's a good, that's a good cutoff point. But uh, it's it's definitely something you need to check out. Uh, it's on Shutter. It's won awards. I I I was. It's a very heavy movie once you finish it, and it doesn't feel that way till you get till. It's it feels heavy, but like the last fifteen minutes, like after that ends, it just.
0: It sits with you. That's I. I completely agree with you. That's one of those ones that you just kind of you kind of still think about it after it ended. Definitely. Uh. All right. So I'm gonna ask you. I kind of said it before this, so I'm gonna ask you. Um. You didn't spoil anything. You know, like about like anything that happens in the film. But okay, it was we're getting earlier. better with that. It, <laughs> do you think the witch was real or no? No. Agreed. That's that's one hundred percent my take. I don't I don't believe the witch but, was real like, for a second.
1: If the witch was real, tell me it wouldn't be badass to just like have like witch. It's like your friend. Nobody's fucking with you.
0: No, I know, I know. But yeah, I just uh, when posed with the do I believe it was real? No, I don't. I think it was a big metaphor, and that's okay. Um, but I I gotta say though to backtrack, it did hurt seeing Lucas get Amber herded, man. <laughs> yeah. A couple of Amber herds on him. Ugh. Just unnecessary.
1: Lucas, Lu- Lucas had it rough,
0: you know. But uh, I can, I can relate to this movie because you know, uh, grow. I don't think you had a real dysfunctional house growing up.
1: <laughs> uh, I no.
0: Yeah, you're lucky. I
1: had what they call the like normal household. I mean, we were lower middle class, but like nobody's calling the cops at at night.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's nice. It's peaceful. But uh, I, I can relate to this movie because growing up, you know, my dad was an absentee father. And, you know, what you saw of him usually wasn't good. And my mother developed manic depression, now known as bipolar disorder, and she didn't have the wherewithal to raise me. You know, she, you know it was my older sister, who's my senior by seven years, who cooked my meals, made my lunch, played with me, etc., you know, our relationship wasn't abusive like Tom and Lucas's, but we did play a game where, you know, we would hold each other's hands. You know that Arnold and Carl Weathers muscle handshake from Predator? <laughs> <laughs> we would uh, hold each other's the, hands like that. The template
1: that. for many a meme.
0: <laughs> yes. Well, we would hold our hands like that, and we would uh, smack the back of each other's hands to see who would quit first from the pain. And uh, I swear to God, and, you know, that's the shit that we did in my house when— mom and dad were away, you know, mom was in bed depressed and dad was downstairs, not caring what we were doing. As long as his TV program wasn't interrupted, interrupted, you know? So, uh, and i know that you know my sister was burdened by me you know i know that she tried not to show it i saw the look of embarrassment and dread on her face when she told her friend i had to tag along because she was stuck watching me you know and being older now is to like thinking that i get it you know and uh, you know her friends would have to stop and take me to toys r us and stuff instead of them being able to chase boys like they should have been doing you know so yeah i totally get this movie and relate to this movie in a lot of ways and uh Luckily, I didn't turn into a metaphoric monster and give into my sinister urges, uh, like Lucas did here, um, which brings me to my ne- next topic. Uh, yeah, I choose to believe that it's in Luke's head, and that's perfectly okay. I give this movie a 9 out of 10.
1: Yeah, I, yeah 9 sounds good. It's a rookie score, because I didn't put a decimal in it,
0: but... <laughs> yeah, what's up, dude? It's like a <laughs> 9.2 or a 9.4. I mean, I can't
1: disagree. Like, I feel like nine's a solid score. Well, uh, I think now it's time to get into Burn and Learn, segment of our show where we fill you in some cool behind-the-scenes facts uh, about the movie we're discussing, and today that's Slapface.
2: Oh. Hmm.
1: Burn and Learn.
0: All right, we're going to thank uh, Director Jeremiah Kip for this segment today because he sent us over some awesome facts that are exclusive to this podcast. So ears open uh okay the executive producer shintaro shimusawa had a well-known cameo in texas chancellor massacre 2022 as the guy with the cell phone who tells leatherface quote try anything and you're canceled bro <laughs> try quote. anything
1: and you're canceled bro like that was <laughs> like a lot of people didn't like that line because they said it was too cheesy but i thought it was hilarious i
0: figured that was one of the ones that you'd yeah <laughs> that's we, a good one yeah
1: uh, the opening scene of the film was discovered in the editing room. Originally, we didn't see the brothers hitting each other until 10 minutes into the film. But producer Mike Manning made the suggestion, saying it would make the audience immediately feel like violence could erupt in this movie at any time without any preamble or explanation. Uh, we tried his idea out, and chills immediately went down all of our spines. I feel like when I saw that, I was just like, what What the fuck's going on? <laughs> yeah, like, man. Like, it's one of those times where you're like, you jump into a movie and you're like, I'm lost. And you're like, I just started it. Of course I'm lost, but like, <laughs> I feel like I'm extra lost. Like, what the hell's going on? I can't catch my bearings on anything.
0: Definitely. That, I could totally understand you. Um, I will, right, well, the sound designer, Michael Odmark created multiple layers of audio for the monster ranging from insect sounds to distorted children and older people. Beastly animals, dust sleddling, creaking ship sounds, and all built atop a baseline audio from our actor Lucas Hassel himself. Odmark, pronounced Odemark, okay, that's Odemark. I've been saying Odmark the whole time, is the unsung hero of the project. Uh, we literally shot
1: the abandoned haunted Wakefield house interiors on Halloween. It wasn't an intentional in joke that that was the day that worked best during our shooting schedule.
0: Mike Manning, who plays Tom, the older brother, lived on the set during the making of the film. Oh, wow. Yeah, right? And uh, slept in Tom's bedroom, drank his morning coffee from the prop coffee maker in the kitchen, and kept his clothes in Tom's closet. He loved having access to the character's home every day before and after we wrapped filming every day.
1: I don't think I'd want to stay in that house. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs)
0: totally, right?
1: But uh, we appreciate his commitment on that one. Dan Hidea, who plays Sheriff John Thurston, was having trouble pronouncing the name of the street where he catches the little boy early in the movie and asked if we could change it. So we call it North Lane instead of, uh, and instead named after the street I grew up. Uh, when I told Dan the change, it felt personalized for him in a specific way, and he said, Beautiful, that's what we should do.
0: All right, now let's get on to talking to the director himself, our guest today, Jeremiah Kipp. Our guest today is the writer and director of the film we're discussing, Slapface. He's also known for his work on Black Week, Mastermind, and The Sadist, starring makeup effects guru Tom Savini. Welcome, Jeremiah Kipp. Thank you for being on High on Horror. Hey, it's my pleasure to be here, man. Awesome to have you. Yeah, we appreciate it. Uh, you've been around for a while, so it's great. It's going to be great to speak with you. Um, before we start, though, we always like to ask our guests, you're on High on Horror, so uh, are you pro-cannabis? Do you indulge? Yeah, I smoked some weed last night while watching The Handmaid's Tale, which was a pretty interesting combination. <laughs> nice. Uh, uh, that's a good show, actually. My wife and I watched that. Um, how often do you smoke? Well, you know, actually, lately I've been doing more
2: like uh, more mushrooms and stuff like that. You know, I've been into taking trips and doing hallucinogens more than smoking weed. But. Like, you know, the most recent times that I smoked weed regularly was making my second and third feature. So Teresa and Allison and Black Wake, I pretty much smoked weed every night after uh, wrapping production on those movies. Uh, But then I had a spell where, like, I got super paranoid smoking weed. And uh, I was like, well, let me just take a break from this and uh, try some other drugs uh, that I hadn't used in a really long time. Like I hadn't done mushrooms since I was like 18 and I'm in my forties now. So, um, so more recently I've been interested in having that kind of an experience, but you know, like smoking weed the other night and watching a handmaid's tale was a lot of fun. Uh, and, uh, um, I'm, you know, I, I work in the arts and a lot of my collaborators and, uh, colleagues are, uh, are, uh, recreational, uh, users as well. So, uh, um, I don't know. I, I think that there's been a long history of, um, of the creative process and the arts and, uh, and, uh, and drug use. I mean, like with, with, um, with weed, a lot of the time it's like to, to help, uh, help relax, you know? And like, and, and I find that the, um, like whenever I'm, doing the, the work that I love, which is in horror films, often in deeply disturbing movies, uh, I've always found it best for the, uh, the actors and the crew to be not in a high stress environment. I think everybody does their best work and is open to do, to delving the most deep when they're relaxed. Uh, so when I was, you know, at the peak of my time smoking weed, which was, uh, uh, my, you know, um, uh, essentially being dazed and confused in, uh, in, in uh, high school, uh, much like the film, uh, and, uh, and working on a couple of the movies that I've made, I found it to be just, uh, a part of the process, um, and, um, and enjoyable and, and just something that enables me to like, uh, to, you know, cut through some of the stress levels and do the work that I really want to do that involves being, uh, able to not, Freak out about disturbing stuff,
1: yeah, I definitely agree with the uh artistic process e- even just with the podcast with writing sometimes yeah. sometimes you just smoke and you're like, Oh, this makes sense to do this and this and like why didn't I think of this before
2: enabling tool
1: is uh is smoking your favorite way to consume uh, do you like edibles?
2: No, I prefer edibles uh lately that's been you know that's been more the way uh, i mean like you know when i was working on my earlier features it was always through smoking but more recently like edibles have been the the, my preferred method
1: but we we feel like we've been hearing that a lot uh lately and uh usually what we hear is like you kind of know exactly what dosage you're getting so you kind of know what you're getting into
2: also, the time frame with the drugs that I've been doing lately, you know, because you're anticipating an experience that will take several hours, you know, so you're creating an environment where you're setting like a large block of time aside to open yourself up to whatever's going to happen. Uh, and I, I think that's great. I mean, like those those experiences the, the thing is great about the trips that I've been on recently is that I can actively remember them. And when I was smoking a lot of weed, I would just have a hard time remembering things. Whereas, like the other drugs that I've been using, I can access memory very easily.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I feel like I, I can kind of relate. There are some times where I've smoked that I'm like, I don't, I don't remember what happened. Yeah. (laughs) Now, uh, and like like you said, you're a fan of the horror genre. What what attracted you to the genre?
2: Well, I, wh- I, I grew up with my grandparents in rural Rhode Island, and they were very lenient about the movies that I would watch. And uh, watching films like Dawn of the Dead and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the early David Cronenberg movies, uh, I, I didn't draw any distinction between those horror films and like Grimm's fairy tales and like children's stories that involve like a witch or a monster or something like that. So I always found horror films to be a source of great joy and relaxation and wild imagination. Like when I watched Dawn of the Dead, I found it exciting, the possibility of living in a shopping mall. And uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, while I found it very scary, like I immediately made a connection with Hansel and Gretel. Like being starving children lost in the woods, they find a gingerbread house and the witch is trying to cook them and eat them. Which is no different than what like Leatherface's family is intending to do also. That's uh, true. Yeah, that's true. And so, you know, so the joy that I derived from fairy tales and the joy that I derived from movies, like the ones I mentioned, but and the David Cronenberg stuff, like, just felt so wildly imaginative, like a gun is growing out of James Wood's hand in Videodrome, and people's heads are exploding. Right, right. Oh, we fairy. love
1: Videodrome. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I, I, um, I just found that I, I never – I was not deeply disturbed by – those films, I felt, fo- I felt like they were reality plus, And I felt, I felt like they were taking our basic human wants and needs and just stretching them into something beyond. So like when you're watching the fly, it's a movie that had a profound effect on me because, um, it would be very hard to watch a movie about someone dying of AIDS or dying of cancer, but like watching Jeff Goldblum turn into a giant fly, you can have the emotional cathartic reaction to it where you feel all the sadness of watching someone you love dying But you also feel that wonder of like watching him turn into this biological thing that is other Uh, and at the ending of that movie i remember crying and crying uh and really being terribly moved by the movie uh and that sadness though felt profound like i didn't feel depression i felt this kind of like large reaction of uh of like uh of tragedy you know, and that kind of, like, later right, on, yeah. like, reading you know, reading what people were saying about the Greek tragedies and, like, the, the terrible things that happen at the end of those, or plays like Hamlet and stuff. You know, I felt those, the earliest time I ever felt that feeling was watching David Cronenberg's The Fly. So I connected with horror films in that way, in a very emotional way when I was younger.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And, uh, you know, it's funny that you mentioned The Fly, because the ending of The Fly... And the ending of Terminator 2 had a huge impact on Mm. me growing up because they both devastated me. But one was like, you know, the hero dies and one was the bad guy dies. And that was what was intriguing to me. And that's what I liked about horror was I was like, horror can kind of put that spin on things. It's very metaphoric where the bad guy, you can sympathize with them the same way you would for the good guy. That's right. You know, when... uh
2: I, I love the film Candyman from 1992, and I've like read a lot of interviews and listened to a lot of stuff with Bernard Rose talking about it, the writer director. And uh, right. I think he had some pushback from either the studio or the producers saying, "Do you think the audience will think it's racist that Candyman is black?" And Bernard Rose said, "I think that and, and roll with me on this. I know it's counterintuitive, but everybody will love Candyman. Everybody will completely embrace that character." And I know it feels weird because he's the monster in that movie, but everyone will love him despite the fact that he kills a dog, despite the fact that he steals a little baby. Uh, Everybody will be attracted to Candyman and want. They'll either want to be him, or they'll want to know him, or they'll identify with the feelings that Helen has of feeling seduced by him, or they'll just find, or they'll be drawn to him like a magnet. Uh, which are a lot of the powerful feelings of uh of candy which is like also a wonderful film in terms of uh in terms of representation uh like uh I, I, you know all audiences have just revered tony todd's great performance as Candyman. they speak about him the same way they did at one time about bella lugosi's dracula and boris karloff's frankenstein it's one of the great uh, monster monster
0: yeah, um, that's I, I completely agree with you. You know, and, and there's a reason why I think Candyman hasn't been rebooted, or there's been a bunch of sequels. I think it was kind of mm-hmm. like, well, if nobody's watching anymore, we're just gonna not make them because nobody would watch them without Tony Todd. They didn't even try to recast them like they did with Pinhead. You know, right. it was just nope, don't even right. try it. Um, well, um, listen, man, you have you know a lot of directing credits under your name. You've been manning a camera for what over 20 years. I mean, like, so I want to yeah. ask you, what do, what do you get out of filmmaking?
2: Well, it's the, the great passion of my life. Um, when I was little, you know, when I was watching all those horror films that we were talking about before, uh, I grew up like deep in the woods. So I was a bit of a lonely child and uh, like art was a great source of uh, inspiration for me. So reading comic books and reading books and, you know, watching movies were all wonderful. Um, I was also like a child actor in like local theater and stuff like that. But once my grandparents got a VHS camcorder, it combined all the things that I loved. It combined the stories from books, it combined the, uh, the acting from appearing in plays. I liked to draw a lot, so I had the visual medium going for it. All the things that I, that I uh, found comforting uh, could be used in the, in the form of movies. It, it combined all the different art forms in a way that uh, spoke to me. And it felt like a way to communicate, uh, my feelings with other people, uh, from for a place of being alone. And, you know, once you start making horror movies, you realize there are a lot of like-minded weirdos out there who are also interested in the, in the same things. Uh, and, and, you know, when I was 12 to 17, uh, I made all these movies with my friends. I would always say, bring your army jackets. We're doing a war movie in the woods, or wear clothes that you're not afraid to get ripped up. You're gonna be zombies attacking the house and uh uh, you know i must have made hundreds of movies with my friends um and the only school that i applied to was new york university the film school Uh, but i cut a little reel together of the hundreds of hours of crappy movies that i would made submitted that with my grades and so on and I, i went to film school and so i moved to new york from rural rhode island and that was a bit of a culture shock moving to the place that i still live now which is like the big city the big apple uh but i was going to film school and i was watching all these cool films from people like Werner herzog and fellini and all these folks that whose movies i'd never seen in new york i had access to all these art house theaters and stuff that i'd never been able to uh, to get to before but even movies like you know abel Ferrara's king of new york the great film with christopher walken like i saw that on vhs and, but I'd read about it in the village voice. And I knew that New York was a place where I'd have access to more movies like that, you know, or you could meet Abel Ferrara in New York, which I did eventually. Uh, we drank uh cold 45s in the Chelsea hotel. And I interviewed him for filmmaker magazine. And let me tell you, That's that awesome. was a pretty wild trip. Uh, he's an interesting character. His uh, girlfriend at the time was there and, uh, he was getting really annoyed because he felt like she was disrupting the interview. So he asked her to stand in the corner and facing the wall. They were both pretty high. So she stands <laughs> in the corner and faces the wall for a while, like, like the Blair Witch Project or something. But then she starts reading passages from the Bible and he's like, yeah, that's what I'm trying to do with my films. And I was like, what an amazing experience. Only in New York can you get to experience like this weirdo heroin, you know, filled, uh, Colonel Kurtz of a filmmaker, uh, and what a wild-ass interview that was. It, was. it was quite a time. I really like Abel Ferrar a lot. I actually think he's a really great artist and a really talented guy. And, you yeah, know, he's managed to work through some of his problems with substance abuse and, like, continued to make really interesting work.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I'm an Abel Ferrara fan myself. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, uh, you had mentioned that, you know, you were uh, making movies, you know, with your friends when you were a kid. Define kid. Uh, yeah. how, how young were you when you knew you wanted to be a movie maker? 12.
2: Yeah. Like when I was 12, once we started making these movies, I was like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I'm determined this will be my life, you know? And, you know, you don't get a lot of support, you know, like saying, I want to be a film director, you know, when, you know, it's like, well, why can't you choose a career where there's a little bit more stability? Fortunately, my grandfather was a pretty open-minded guy and he grew up extremely poor, not unlike the characters in Slapface, uh and he was bound and determined for me to do whatever i wanted to do in my life and if that was film directing he was going to do he was going to move heaven and earth to make it possible i also had a very excellent art teacher named mrs callahan who was really tough on me uh in art class uh but she went up she knew that like the scholarships and grants that i might be able to get wouldn't be for film but if i submitted my films for art grants then you know that would help pay my way through like uh, a very expensive education at new york university so she and my grandfather and several other people like worked really hard to try to get me out of my uh, limited means uh, and achieve uh, a dream which was to get out of uh, essentially poverty and like you know move to the city and do the things they wanted to do so 12 years old is when i really you know, knew what i wanted to do 17 i was like i'm going there uh, and 17, 18, I was in film school, like doing it. And the hardest part of my life actually was out, when I just finished film school, I was 21 years old and, uh, you know, I get out of, you get out of, film school and you're like, we're, we're we, we i am going to make my feature. But you know, I didn't have any resources. I didn't have any money. I didn't know anybody. Uh, and I couldn't make my first feature, but what I did do was, um, I worked for a nonprofit filmmaker organization called the, uh, independent feature project. And one of the interns there like knew that I wanted to make movies and he's like, hey, why don't you join our little uh, club? We call ourselves the Sunday Club. We get together every Sunday and we make a movie and then we have brunch. How's that sound? I was like, that sounds great. So then I made a bunch of other shitty films with those guys, you know, as part of a film collective where like we had the we had a high-eight camera and some editing software. We gradually moved to a DSLR. And then I watched um, one of my friends in that group move on and like spend thirty thousand dollars on Essentially, her short film on 16 millimeter that did film festivals and so on. Uh, and the first short that I did that I thought was any good was in 2003. And it was a movie called The Christmas Party. It was about a little boy who was dropped off at a Christmas party, the kind that wants everyone else to be Christian too. And that kind of had an invasion of the Body Snatchers vibe um it was not a horror movie per se but it was scary because like this kid was dropped off at this event and the audience didn't know what was going to happen uh and it played at film festivals for like three years and it played at some horror film festivals where like they they said yeah this is a horror film it's scary but in new england they treated it as social realism when we screened it in france they thought it was a satire of america but i knew that we'd done something that spoke to people it played at some christian film festivals where they interpreted it as a kid who was almost saved. Uh, but it, that really, you know, I, I felt like I had achieved something where anytime you put that movie in front of an audience, the Q&A would, would spark debate. Uh, it happened to come out at a time right after The Passion of the Christ had come out, the Mel Gibson movie. Yeah. Sure. So there was a wavelength the audiences were on where like they aggressively wanted to talk about this stuff. And the only mistake I made was I did not have a feature length script tucked under my arm when that movie was out there, I was doing the festival thing and producers were like, you got a feature. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to write one. It took me three years to write one. And then by the time I was like, Hey, I got a feature, like all those money sources had dried up. And I learned really the hard way that like, if you're doing the film festival thing, uh, you need to be ready when opportunity calls. And I, I was, I said, never again will I allow this to happen. I will always have a feature length script tucked under my arm and I'll be ready for it the next time it happens. Uh, and just jumping ahead to slap Face, you know, it's, uh, um, I was trying to get that feature length script made for years and years and years. You know, it was really hard to get people to understand what I was trying to do with it, because movies like Hereditary hadn't come out yet, and The Witch hadn't come out yet. So, um, so the director of photography, Dominic Savilli, who's been my friend for many, many years, he said, why don't we do a short film you know, like I'd done many times before, I'd done like many, many short films and I think four or five features by that point, uh, we made an eight minute short and I said to myself, well, if I never make the feature, I will at least have told this version of the story, which, you know, in the eight minutes included the game of slap face that is in the movie and the monster that is in the movie and the little boy. Uh, and for three years, that movie did the film festival thing and it did well and I got good notices. And every QA I would say this is a proof of concept for a feature. And then when the producers who were looking for a dysfunctional family drama with a monster in it came and said, Do you have a script? You know, do you have a do you have a feature-length version of this? Do you have a pitch deck? I was like, Yes, I do. And I sent them the short and the pitch deck and the feature. And like, that's what enabled uh, Slapface to exist was remembering back in 2003, 2004, 2005, that I kind of blew it, uh, when the opportunity was presented to me the first time. So that when the, when the opportunity circled around again, I knew that I would be ready for it, but that was Slapface uh, slap is also not my first feature. You know, like my first feature was the sadist back in, we shot it in 2010 and it was a killer in the woods movie. That these and these producers had seen a short film that I made and thought that I was talented. And they said, let's do this movie together. Um, and then Tom Savini came on board and was our killer in the woods. And, uh, that was my first time working with somebody who was a hero of mine when I was younger watching Dawn of the dead. You remember him as the guy wielding the uh, machete and from dusk till dawn, of course, a sex machine and so many other great George Romero movies and so on, you know, Tom Savini is a hero to all of us in the horror world. Uh, and I remembered, he was our killer in the woods. He was the guy that was like killing the teenagers, basically, in that film. Uh, Tom has a terrible rep- reputation from the convention circuit of not suffering fools gladly. And I've heard many people say that he's a very difficult, ornery personality. Uh, so Dominic, who shot to that face and shot my first feature, The Sadist, we decided before Tom showed up, we were going to shoot for two weeks. And then we edited together everything we'd shot so far. And then Tom Savini shows up on our set and is prepared to direct the movie for us. He shows up as like, put the camera here. I'm going to go over here. This other actor is going to do this. And I'm like, that sounds great, Tom. Uh, why don't you go get through hair, makeup? And before you do watch this two minute reel that we've cut together, of what we shot so far. And he watched it and he was like, oh, okay. Okay. Great. 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 I'm going to go get ready. And from then on, he was nothing but supportive and encouraging, uh, and there for the movie and trying to help us. Um, and I saw that if he did not trust you, he would drive over you like a panzer tank. But if you earned his trust then he would do anything for you, because he's a crew guy, he's a special effects artist. He, he, he works behind the scenes. Uh, and he was like, he literally was like, Hey, uh, you know, when the truck hits me, can I do my own stunt? We had a stunt man standing by and we we're like, Tom, you're 65 years old. You know, I don't know about this truck hitting you. And he said, no, let me show you how we can do it. So that it will look like I'm, you know, I will actually be jumping on the truck, and I will make it look like it's hitting me, and you know, all this stunt stuff. And and I was like, Tom, if you're crazy enough to do that, then I'm crazy enough to shoot it. And sure enough, like he did the stunts, and it was brilliant. And it was so much better having Tom Savini be the guy on the hood of the truck uh, that gets pinned to a wall and all this other stuff. So that wound up being. I, I learned a lot from that experience. Like I, I think the number one thing I learned from Tom Savini was that you, like, I never treated Tom like he was my idol. I never talked to to him about Friday the 13th or Dawn of the Dead or any of that. I just treated him like Tom, who was an actor in our film, who was there to do his job. And I was there to do my job and our points would meet in that way. Uh, And it wound up being really great. And I applied that to every other person who is an experienced actor and the name talent that gets the money or whatever, you know, I never was interested in treating them like they were, uh celebrity right, right. i was always interested in treating them like a crafts person and a colleague and that we're all making this together and you do the same work that i do you just get there faster because you're more experienced and that's the only difference between a, like a, an older experienced name talent person and like the person who's just done a couple features or whatever
0: well that's good that you can you know separate you know uh just treating people like companions instead of uh acting as if or as peers rather instead of acting as if you know like they're celebrity because a lot of times that's what kind of gives celebrities big heads is they'll you know they're oh i'm used to being treated a certain way so you kind of keep them on a grounded level and also you don't like come off as like this fan that's just eager to have them in your movie you're like i am a fan but i'm professional
2: yeah exactly i think the definition of like professional is showing up and doing the work you know showing up and doing the work to the best of your ability you know showing up and doing the work with great passion you know, and you know, if if you show up and do the work with great passion, like that light gets passed on. You know, it's like your your passion is infectious, and other people will be passionate too. Uh, you know, so Tom, you know, wanted to give a big speech on his last day, and I was a little bit like, man, you know, I don't know if we want to take the you know we could be shooting for that ten minutes. Do you want to give a speech? It's like, no, no, I think it'll be good. And he you know gave the speech basically saying you guys are reminding me what it's all about like you know low budget movies you get to be really creative and you're not sitting around waiting in your trailer you're there with your boots on the ground like making work and this is why i got into this in the first place so it was one of those moments that where i was like i was really glad that we let tom talk because he reminded us what it was all about and what he cared about and what he was passionate about
0: yeah absolutely that's awesome uh, i had to be an honor to work with someone like Savini. Um, well, um, I wanted to go back and ask you, uh, let's go back about the short film of Slapface. Um, so I understand Now I deliberately didn't read articles because I don't, sometimes I read articles in prior, prior interviews before I uh, interview someone that way I can kind of, I don't want to ask questions that are redundant and things like that. But I heard, and I didn't want to spoil it for myself that Slapface was like important to you. I don't know why. So I'm going to ask you how it was important to you. And also What's the origin of the game Slapface? Like, how did you come up with the game of people of the brothers just smacking each other in the face as a way to, uh, I guess, express their anger or whatever, like just emotion?
2: Well, I mean, I, I can answer both of those questions at once. Uh, so the, the film is personal, but it's not autobiographical. Like uh, in many ways, it's more based on the life of uh, my grandfather, Tom. Uh, who I named the older brother after in the film. Uh, Tom, uh, his, Like in real life, my grandfather's dad played slap face with him. So his dad was an orphan who learned to play slap face in the orphanage. And then he would play that game with my grandfather. And that game was, if you are bad, which they often were because they were a lower income family and you're bored and you're you know, kind of committing crimes as a way to pass the time. If you are bad, then I will hit you and then you hit me back just as hard. Uh, and the idea behind that game is that if you are hitting me, then you are making me feel the pain also, you know? Oh, so we're okay. having a shared experience in this in this violence. Uh, I remember my grandfather telling me about that. And I, I remember even at a very early age, putting that in counterpoint to the horror films that I was watching. And I was like, well, this is way worse than uh, you know the horror films that like that give me so much joy because this is abuse. This is this is the abuse of a child. You know this this is um, this cannot stand. Uh, and you know I didn't really get the idea to turn like slap like take my granddad's story, and put it into a movie until I'd reread Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which is a novel that I really adore. Uh, and I got to the middle of the book where there's an extraordinary section where the monster is outside of a farmhouse like kind of leaving firewood and like taking care of the people who live there and imagining the lives of the people inside and i said wouldn't that make a cool movie if it were all about that like a monster outside imagining the family and i said well who would the family be and i started like stealing stuff from the stories that my granddad had told me about his childhood so slap face was something that i pulled into it and that, um, my grandfather after school would be chased through the woods by three female bullies who would throw rocks at him. Uh, but one of them would always circle back around and say, I'm your secret girlfriend, kiss me, but don't tell anyone or we'll beat you worse. Uh, so I was like, well, that's going in the movie too, you know, like all that, all that real life stuff will be the family of the monster is watching. And then before I knew it, it wasn't really an adaptation of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein anymore. And I said, well, what if the monster were not uh, Victor Frankenstein's creature? What if it were the proverbial witch from Grimm's Fairy Tales? So it could still have that like, sort of 10-foot-tall Frankenstein's monster quality. But what if on top of that 10-foot-tall monster you put the, the, the gingerbread witch's head on top of it? What a weird dysmorphic effect that would be of like having an elongated creature with a witch face because we're so used to that <laughs> like, witch being small like with the pot and so on. Um, and I thought that was really creepy and dysmorphic and fascinating. And the more I thought about the, the witch, the more I wanted to imagine her in three dimensions and say, well, what if she were a character with her own wants and desires and needs? If I'm approaching the family with a sense of social realism, what if I approached the witch the same way? and said, like, what does the witch care about? What does the witch want? What does the witch long for? What does the witch yearn for? Uh, and there are precedents for that in the horror genre as well. Frankenstein's Creature has all the, all those wants that we all have. You know, Roy Batty in Blade Runner, which is not a horror film, wants to live and wants to love and wants to feel things. It is that more human than human thing. Candyman from 1992 wants a legacy and wants to be loved and wants to be remembered. Uh, so I was like, let me humanize The needs of this monster and then that became the story you know it's like we're going to create the monster and the child story almost like disney's fox and the hound in counterpoint to the story of this family you know this family living in post tragic trauma you know where their parents are gone as is the case in so many children's stories where the parents are wiped out and now it's this older brother and this younger brother that have to fend for themselves uh thrown into an adult world that is beyond their means and then you throw a monster into that and now you've got brutal social realism in counterpoint to the fantastic the elements of the fantastic that are in the horror movie and i wanted the movie to be the communication between those two things and how they bounce off of each other in a powerful way for me
0: okay understood uh that that, that, that was a great answer um like i you know that's yeah, I that's, that was a really good answer, man. Um, I, uh, I wanted to say Thank that I, I noticed something during the film, and that's that uh, Tom tries to make Lucas reflect him. Tom has a breakup with his girlfriend, so instead of telling Lucas to mend his problem with his girlfriend, he tells him to let her go. Was it purposeful that you made them kind of like go through the same things together?
2: Yeah, all of these characters are like essentially trying to mirror stuff that they've seen already. So Tom is trying to be his dad, you know, the younger couple is trying to copy the older couple. The monster, in many ways, is trying to copy the human characters. Like, as the monster character learns about the humans, you see the Virago witch attempting to play slap face, and you see um, one of the characters points a gun at the witch, and the witch like mimics the gesture of uh, cocking and pointing a gun at them. You know, so there's a constant watching how other people behave and then attempting to mirror it as a way of having that experience that happens throughout
0: the entire movie and it's uh it's not an accident that you saw that okay well um we were speaking about the witch a minute ago and i wanted to ask you um was the witch's look inspired by anything because when i was watching this movie with my wife my wife pointed out she said ask him if the witch was inspired by snow white, because it kind of looks like a twisted version of the snow white, witch to me.
2: Yeah. Like uh, not. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think I specifically thought of snow white, but like snow white was drawing from the same inspiration that I was, which is that classical hook nosed witch that we, that we know from Grimm's fairy tales, you know, and they transplanted that witch into snow white. And I took that same idea and like applied it to the hulking monster that, um, that I wanted to have, so not Snow White specifically, but Snow White and I were drawing from the same inspiration of a different source.
0: Okay, okay, gotcha. Yeah, there's definitely the witch is creepy looking, and uh, it's one of those things where you know, uh, even though it's it's playing the part of being a friend, it's definitely one of those things where I even oh, I'm they're watching the movie. I'm kind of on the edge of my seat. Like, can I really trust this thing? I don't know. So it's, it's funny to have something that hideous be portraying and kind of like be portrayed in kind of like an innocent light, like to be nice to a child, because you're naturally drawn to just be like, get away from that thing.
2: Yeah. That to me was the, the conflict of the movie. It's like when we introduce the monster, everybody expects the monster to attack and destroy, which the monster does at several points in the movie. But when the monster snatches up the boy the very first time. She takes the boy to see this uh this beautiful sunset. And like yeah. I you know, it's one of those things where the, the monster is a complex character, you know, the monster admires beauty and also when she feels like she needs to defend the, the boy will attack with great murderous violence. So I think both can be true. You know, the uh the monster, just because someone is a monster does not mean they cannot love. And just because someone is a monster does not mean they cannot appreciate beautiful things. You know, I always like loved. I love the films of George Miller, uh, and I was so inspired when he said during the press tour for Mad Max: Fury Road, just because we're in the wasteland, doesn't mean we can't appreciate beautiful things. And the ornate intricacy of like the world that Miller created, and the love that the characters have for designing the looks for themselves and their vehicles for themselves, is truly felt. You know, I I I thought Miller said it perfectly. Uh, a monster can have poetry in their heart and also be a dangerous murderous frightened beast absolutely and uh mad max fury road man what a fucking movie i love that movie i love it too george miller is a great source of yeah i think he's a genius you know like i i i look to him i think he's a master of visual storytelling and uh you know, I, I not to say that there aren't films with great dialogue in them, but like uh, uh, the more that I can, you know, tell the story through pictures and images, the happier I am. I think is the strength of the medium, and Fury Road does that perfectly. I mean, you could turn the sound off, and you'd be missing a great sensory experience by doing that, but you would be able to follow that story perfectly and completely. And, you know, like I, I just rewatched um, Halloween three season of The Witch recently. And the first like eight or nine minutes, there's no dialogue in that movie either. That is like Tommy Lee Wallace drawing from John Carpenter and doing purely visual storytelling, like the pictures are telling you everything. You're immediately pulled into the narrative of that movie. And maybe I was thinking of maybe Halloween three was also on the brain because I just listened to your uh, interview with wonderful filmmaker uh, Jacob Gentry for broadcast signal intrusion. I should also say that Tom Atkins is my favorite actor as well. You know, it's uh, I'm a big Halloween Three fan, and I should also add that like the the masks in that movie, you know, like there's a there's the pumpkin face and the witch face and the ghost face. But like when when those faces start melting and all the insects are pouring out of them, the melted the melted mask face was also something that I think was on the, on the brain a little bit when you know it's like well we saw the pumpkin face melt in Halloween Three, but if the witch face It'd gotten distorted and melty and like a little trippy and beyond you know like maybe that could be something that the uh the witch in that face could look like so i mean that could just be my passion for halloween 3 being a pretty underappreciated uh, well maybe not anymore i think people have come around and seen it as wonderful movie. it's but, finally
0: uh, getting its The too. witch face in halloween
2: 3 might have inspired a little bit
0: yeah uh i can totally see that now that you mentioned that, that the nose on your witch and everything i can totally see how it could be like the Halloween mask, just a little, like, tightened up and droopy. Totally get that. Um, uh, Another thing uh, that I wanted to bring up to you, actually, that I had made a note of, uh, was that you made uh, the girls in this movie the bullies. And uh, you had said, you know, that um, you had made them... It was The three girls are the bullies. It's not male bullies. It's girls. And I was wondering... Now, you had already said uh, that, you know, your grandfather uh, was bullied by three girls, so it makes sense now. But my question was, I, I... thought that maybe you were either trying to say that girls are bullies too, or you were trying to express how weak Lucas was by showing, hey, he gets bullied by girls.
2: No, I wasn't trying to say that Lucas was weak by being bullied by girls. You know, it's like, I think that the 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 stuff that Lucas has to go through in the movie requires enormous uh, strength uh, and a rich inner life. Uh, but, um, but the girls can be bullies too. You know, it's like I... I I feel like we can explore that as much as we can explore anything else, you know? And I also thought that the actors who played the, the bullies in the film were really excited about the possibility of doing it because, um, uh, you know, teenagers their age are rarely asked to, um, to do something that they recognize as a fundamental truth from like being in, uh, they're all high school age kids and they all, have to some degree or another experienced uh, bullying, and by playing the bully, they can represent something that they've had to deal with. The uh, the twins Bianca and Chiara D'Ambrosio, uh, they're like these uh, Disney actors, but like they're very um, they're very against bullying, which is how they met uh, Mike Manning, our, the producer of our film. They all met at something called Boo for Bullying, uh, and they're very passionately against bullying. And they thought that by representing a thing. Truthfully, that uh, that they have experience, they could shed some light on it and an insight on it that is not often represented. Uh, and um, and Mirabelle Lee, who plays Mariah, was drawn in by the complexity of that character because it's not just that she's bullying; it's that she wants to be accepted by a community, and she feels like she, in a way, has to lead a double life of like you know being uh, Lucas's secret girlfriend. But not at the expense of the status that she has of being friends with the essentially alpha bullies. Uh, And, like, you know, uh, carrying that level of complexity was something that Mirabelle Lee was excited about doing and, of course, was more than capable of handling. We auditioned uh, hundreds of actors to play Mariah. And once we saw her, we knew she was the one. Like, we knew that she was the right actor for that part. Uh, so the bullying spoke to them, not because they are bullies themselves, but because they wanted to represent a thing that they had experienced themselves and felt like they could share it in a movie.
0: Okay, understood. Uh, yeah, either way, it was uh, you don't see female bullies in movies much, so that was interesting to see. Um, on IMDb, it says that the monster, played by Lucas Hassel, who played the monster in the short as well, is now known as the Virago Witch. Virago meaning... A domineering, violent, or bad-tempered woman—is this true? Is this what we're calling the witch?
2: Yeah, in the film they call her that, you know. Uh,
0: but, oh, I um, that. I've seen the movie to, twice, yeah, and I the that.
2: The monster, you know. And I, I always sort of felt that was fair, you know. I, you know, it's—I mean, part of it could just be that, like John Carpenter called Michael Myers the shape, and I felt that was more accurate, you know. Like I was like, well, that kind of is what that is. That is, like for the Virago Witch, I always felt like that was a name that somebody had imposed on the creature, not that the creature had created for herself. You know, so um, so I was like, that's what people call her, but that's not
0: necessarily who she is. Uh, okay, that makes total sense. Okay, I like that. Well, um, I just wanted to say that uh, you know, you see, you're, you're obviously a horror fan. You know your stuff. This movie to me was like a more poignant, deeper. Twisted version of Let the Right One In. It was, you know, uh, it's a badass witch instead of a vampire. You have a bullied kid mm-hmm. who finds a supernatural companion that stands up for him. Was Let the Right One In in the back of your mind at all when you were planning or writing Slapface? Yeah, well, I love that film director.
2: Uh, I loved Let the Right One In, and I loved Tinker taylor Soldier Spy, which is another movie that that guy made. Um, I just think he's a very sensitive filmmaker. You know, it's like he understood how to portray children in an adult story. Uh, and that really excited me. I I wish there were more films that had like child protagonists, but not in the, in the young adult form, not in like, you know, YA novel format. Like, uh, yeah, I, I, I've never actually seen goosebumps or anything like that. So like, I can't speak to the, 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 whether it's like good or not, but I know the movies that I watched involving children were stuff like phantasm, uh, which is also about brothers, like, in a in a crazy situation of grief that is beyond them. Uh, you know, and I know that Phantasm is a movie that I've seen probably a hundred times. I can't get enough of that movie. You know, it just, like, it, I, I thought it spoke to aspects of my childhood. It, you know, like, these guys working on this Barracuda car all the time, like, was something that I felt like I knew. So, like, Phantasm was a pretty direct inspiration for stop face. I was like, you know, that's like, it, it fits a model that I want to do. Now, Let the Right One In, I just thought it was a great movie. And like, you know, it, it is one of those movies that enabled it to be possible to tell a story from a child's point of view that was meant to engage adult viewers, uh, which I thought, I thought was really exciting. I love the, I, you know, like, I won't spoil the ending for anyone who hasn't seen the movie, but the ending of Let the Right One In is so scary and so powerful and so memorable. The images are so wonderfully horrific, uh, and extreme and violent, uh, you know, i is, I'm, I'm sure let the right one in was on the brain when I was making this movie, just because making Slapface, just because I think it's a great film, but, you know, the Babadook is another movie that involves like a child and a monster It's just told from a different point of view. It's told from the point of view of the, the parent, the mother, uh, and the, the, the monster represents a whole different set of fears to a parental figure to, than to a child. Uh, but the thing that let the right one in I identified with was it's from a child's point of view, like it's from a child's perspective, which Stopface face shares with that, you know, and like, uh, let the right one in is a film to be studied for like how to tell an adult story from a child's perspective.
1: And it's, uh, it's funny you bring up the Duke. That was kind of what I compared it to, but I was like, not in like a bad way. Cause some people seem to not like the Duke, but I kind I kind of saw the parallels between it a little bit and just the different perspective it's being told from
2: yeah, I think it's, you know, I enjoy that movie a lot. I think Jennifer Kent is a great director. Uh, And I think that movie is, like, the mechanism of that movie is different than Slapface, but I think that the the way that it is about a relationship between a parent, a parental figure, a child, and a monster, you know, you could certainly draw parallels with Slapface in in a way that could be interesting.
1: Now, does Tom really care about his brother, or is it just like it seems like everybody in this town has a dependent relationship with somebody.
2: I think that Tom thinks he loves his brother. You know, like I I think that he thinks he's protecting his brother and taking care of his brother and doing the best he can. But like Tom doesn't really have the emotional equipment or the bandwidth to know what to do. He's not much more than a child himself. You know, he would rather be like down at the bar, you know, picking up girls and like, you know, showing off and like, you know, being a stud, uh, you know, he did not ask to be the parent. So I think he loves his brother. I think he wants what's best for his brother, but he's not getting an A in the taking care of your brother department. He's getting a C minus, you know, it's like, he's not, he just it doesn't have the tools to be able to do the thing that he feels is his obligation to do. But he's trying. I think he's doing his best, you know? But like, uh, you know, the the, the model that he's using is toxic. You know, it's like he's he learned something from his dad that he thinks is the way to do it. And he's just applying a model that shouldn't be used in the first place to raising his kid brother.
1: And uh, are the twins with Mariah, are they supposed to be like equivalent to Lucas with the witch? They kind of bring out the worst in each other.
2: Yeah, it would seem. You know, it's like uh, only through through a little bit of uh, a goading, you know, it brings out the worst in Mariah. But you know, she behaves differently when she's around Lucas than when she's around the twins, and she's trying to hold space for both of those things. But it's almost like when you're, you know, like when people are having an extramarital affair or something like that, they're living between two worlds, and those worlds, once they collide, will smash into one another, and it just as a system that fundamentally cannot work.
1: And it feels like with that town, there's like the only two nice people are the sheriff and Anna. Well,
2: I think that they just have a limited world that they have access to, you know, and I think it's, you know, I I think that in a different situation, it would be great that Anna came into the world of like Tom and Lucas because she's, uh, she's able to through her saying stuff like I'm a Wiccan. She's able to access stuff with Lucas in a way that he might not otherwise have access to. And if Tom and Anna were given enough space and were able to reconcile, maybe they could work it out, you know? So like, I think Anna is a positive force in their lives. And finally someone is like living there that is looking at what they're doing and saying like, what the hell are you guys doing? That's dysfunctional. That's fucked up. There's like, that's not, that, that's really, you know, by looking at you know, often the abuse and the abuser, they normalize the system of abuse. And it's like, well, that's just what we do. You know? Uh, yeah. Like he, you know, the, you know, there's some hitting, but like, you know, it's just for the greater good or whatever. Or like, oh, it didn't hurt me that bad, you know. But then when somebody, a third party is there saying, like, you are slapping a little boy, you know, it's like, you know, Tom Mew gets defensive. He's like, I'm not, hurting, I'm not abusing my brother, you know, but like having that outside source looking in can be very valuable and allow you insights into yourself. And uh, The Sheriff, I was extremely grateful that we cast a, an actor that I really admire named uh, Dan Hidea who was in uh, one of those movies that I saw when I was a kid. You know, he was in a movie called Blood Simple, which is the first film by the Coen brothers. And I remember watching that movie and saying, you know, it was one of my first times watching a movie and understanding the relationship of the camera to what was happening. You know, there are shots in that movie that Roger Ebert had described as, like, it felt like these filmmakers thought they'd never get a chance to make a movie ever again. So they're pulling out all the stops and going for it all the way. And when I saw blood symbol, it's like, yeah, that's what I would want to do too. I would want to make something like that where I'm like, I'm going to put everything into it the moment that I can. Uh, anyway, like, so Dan today playing the sheriff was essentially playing somebody that inspired me as a younger person in, in a role of uh, a mentor figure who is doing his best, who cared about the family, who seems to have cared about the mother. Uh, but is also getting a little tired of, um, of giving away what he calls get out of jail free cards. I mean he's not so wrong. Kind of
1: yeah. Hmm? Say again? He's not he's not wrong. He does give yeah, I mean, a, he was, a lot he, of he, chances. He out-
2: yeah. You see where it all leads, which is tragedy. Like whether, you know, and that that's the thing that, you know, when people watch the movie, there's that ambiguity of like, is the monster real? Is the monster all in Lucas's head? And uh, you know, the thing that I want to say about that is like whether the monster is real or not. You know, it's like the tragedy that this family is barreling towards feels like it would happen inevitably either way, whether there was a monster or whether it was not a monster. Um, And, you know, I think that the movie could be taken as, you know, all right, the monster is a manifestation of this kid's anger, you know, or... This monster is, you know, you know, or the monster is real and the same thing, you know, like the monster is like was brought about by like Lucas wanting this thing and like bring that into existence. Um, and either way, you know, I think that like the, the situation that befalls Tom and Lucas probably would be the same either way, whether the, the whether this witch is a present real thing or not.
1: And the blue flowers that lead to the witch, what what flowers were those? Because I kind of thought of Batman Begins a little bit, where he has to bring the flower up the mountain.
2: I'm really flattered by the comparison <laughs> to Batman Begins, uh, because I, I also really like that movie. But I think Batman Begins is, is like using an element of... Uh, you know, that sort of like magical storytelling of like, well, if you follow this trail of magical objects, it will lead you to wisdom, you know, or whatever, you know, and, and Batman Begins is not doing magical realism or anything like that, but it is a, an element of like fantastical storytelling that allows Bruce Wayne to get up there and like learn from these mystical people. Yeah, you know, and they created a mystical environment around them. So yeah, I, I you know once again, it's like I, I actually really love that part of Batman Begins. There's a lot I like <laughs> about that movie, uh, but um, uh, the uh, you know I, I think it's the same thing as Snow White, which is that like they're drawing from older stories uh, and and incorporating them in a new way. I mean that's the that's the thing that I think is so great about Batman Begins. It's, it's pulling, it's constantly pulling old narratives, whether they're like, you know, uh, you know, I mean like Batman has been around since I guess the 1930s or 1940s and Christopher Nolan did this very sleek, very modern updating of it that felt like it was, you know, you're like, Oh yeah, this is kind of a Batman that almost could exist in reality. You know, it's like Christian Dale has those fight club bruises on (laughs) him after being Batman. And you know, it's like still a superhero movie, but it has, but it has elements of the crime movie and the, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi training you to use the force movie that I think like make it really special. It's like once you start taking those mystical things and then commenting on them, like the, you know, the Liam Neeson character says use mysticism and elements of what we perceive as magic to, to essentially fake out and confuse your opponent. You know, I thought that Batman Begins did a great job of taking the, the elements of superhero movies that we might perceive at the time as being silly and like grounding them in a kind of, like, uh, yeah, up to the minute, Michael Mann style, you know, uh, uh, here we are, like, you know, we, we're building the Batmobile in our garage, you know, kind of thing.
1: But uh, what uh, what, what were the name of the flowers you were uh, using?
2: You know, I'm trying to remember, like, what those actual flowers were. I, I know that, like, in the script, they were, like, specifically described as blue petals that we would have. And then uh, the production designer Kat Van Cleave, who I work with a lot, like found and sourced these petals and then showed them to me and was like, "Is this what you have in mind?" I was like, "Yes, yeah, so it's perfect." So much like Hall- John Carpenter's Halloween, where they had bags full of leaves in California, like spraying them around all over the place. You know, we had bagfuls of these like blue flowers, constantly making trails of them in uh, in upstate New York. So like whichever, however she sourced them, you know, they were actual flower petals that we like had like that we got by the by the pound, you know, we had to pick them off of like, uh, of these like branches and then stuff them in bags and then scatter them around where we went and then sweep them up again and use them in different
1: scenes. And, uh, what, 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 does the witch get out of the relationship? Obviously Lucas gets companionship and somebody's looking out for them. Is that also what the witch wants or is the witch just looking for fresh meat?
2: I think she also wants a friend, you know, I think that, um, you know, both the monster and Lucas have elements of Travis Pickle, taxi driver where like if Travis Pickle taxi driver just found a friend, then he wouldn't do some of the things that he did in that movie. And I think Lucas and the monster both are yearning to have somebody that will nurture them and love them and understand them and care for them and not treat them like a freak. Uh, and they get that from each other. They get this compassion and care from each other and they both are able to hurt each other. Like when the, like when, the monster perceives Lucas as spending too much time with Mariah. The monster gets jealous because, you know, I thought I was your special friend. You know, so there are elements. So uh, there, you know, the um, their their need to be loved and to be seen and to be cared for are, are mutual feelings. They both feel that.
1: And uh, we're both universal monster fans as well. Yeah. Growing up, did you always want one of those monsters as, like, a companion? Like, I always thought that would be cool as a kid if, like, I had Frankenstein just, like, walking around with me.
2: Same. Yeah, I always loved Frankenstein's monster. I always felt enormous sympathy and empathy for the creature, particularly Boris Karloff's performance, which is so full of yearning and so full of a desire to be cared for. It's, like, you know, it's, it's so strange. You know, I, I feel like the actor who plays the monster is always so criminally underappreciated, you know, when, when you watch the credits for the 1930s, Frankenstein, it says monster dot, 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 question mark. It doesn't even say (laughs) Boris Karloff, because they so don't understand that the monster is the star of that movie and the heart and soul of that movie. Uh, And for a long time, Doug Jones, who did so much brilliant work with uh, Guillermo del Toro. Del Toro had to constantly say that guy's name in interviews and say, Doug Jones is the guy, like Doug Jones is the artist who plays these, inhabits these monsters and brings them to life for us. And even when we made slap face, you know, the producers were like, yeah, yeah, cast whoever is the monster, you know, like every other part we're <laughs> going to spend a lot of time on. Uh, and for the, the, you know, the, the two big asks I had, were like, can we please have Dominic Seville as the director of photography? Cause in many ways he enabled this project to exist and he's a brilliant artist and we're old friends. Uh, and Lucas Hassel as the monster uh, because um, Lucas I felt could inhabit the creature very powerfully and soulfully and, the, and you know I don't think they really cared that much who played the monster until they saw Lucas Hassel's work and saw how much the actor Lucas Hassel was contributing to this movie and how much uh, beauty of the soulful side he invests in this monster and how um, how through his body he's able to express like not only the love, but also the fear and also the rage and all of those feelings. And like, without a brilliant actor underneath the makeup, it's just rubber and paint, you know, I mean, not to undervalue the, the, um, the work of special effects artists, Tony O'Brien and Sandy Washington, who contributed the monster or to the wardrobe designer, Anna Davis, who created that wonderful flowing robe and cowl, uh, Lucas Hassel is the one who makes the monster real for the audience, you know, Lucas Hassel is the one who makes that paint and prosthetics come to life in a way that they can treat the monster as a character and not as a prop.
1: Yeah, I mean, it worked out for you at the Cinequest Film Festival. It won the uh, best feature for, or both for feature, thriller, horror, sci-fi. And uh, how awesome was that to win the uh, audience award for that?
2: it was really, really, really gratifying because the effect that we wanted to have with this movie was to not only create a sense of dread in the viewer, but also to break their hearts. You know, Like our goal was really for the audience to go through the thrill ride of a dread-inducing scary movie, but by the end of it, like if the audience was uh, emotionally moved, then that would have been a real accomplishment for us. And after CineQuest, and then Fright Fest, which was our next uh, festival, where they were it screened essentially on an IMAX screen, we got a lot of reports back that like uh, that people were moved to tears by the movie, and they were not expecting that. Like that, there were a lot of people who were shaken by the movie and uh, uh, had and, and had that emotional overhaul that we were hoping for. So the uh, the audience award as a result of Cinequest and the response from critics and audiences at uh, at Fright Fest. Uh, it it was really gratifying because it was the effect that we were really hoping to achieve from audiences. But at the end of the day, you finish the film, you do the best you can, and then it does not belong to you anymore. You know, the movie belongs to whoever the viewer is and they can like the movie or not like the movie. They can be scared of the monster, or not scared of the monster. They can be pulled into the movie or not. You know, like they are the expert of this movie now, you know, it's like, it belongs to every single person who watches it. but I, you know, but it was certainly like warmed my heart and my soul that like people were touched by the film and the audience award at CineQuest was our first uh, experience of that. Um, and, you know, we were like, wow, we, you know, we thought we made a movie that would creep people out. But like we were it went beyond our expectations. And we said we, we did the, the deeper thing that we wanted to do, which was to tell a story that would move people.
1: Yeah. The final images of that film are very powerful.
2: You know, I would say the final image was not my idea. You know, I mean, we knew we were going to push in on a close-up. But, like, uh, August Machero, who plays Lucas, you know, he said, Hey, Jeremiah, how would you feel if I looked directly into the lens? And uh, we were, like, three hours behind. Like, we, we didn't go into overtime too often. But that night, we were three hours into overtime. And we, were, you know, we weren't going to shoot that scene two ways. It was like we are going to make a choice and go with it. And I, remember, and I remember August was looking at me and he said, you know, maybe we can do it both ways. And I said, no, no, let's do it with you looking into the lens. Let's just commit to that. And then he did it and the effect was extremely uh, moving for us on set. You know, we were we all felt the power of August's performance. Uh, and the, that's the last thing that the audience is left with. The last image that they have is this one. And I must credit August with the uh, the power of that idea. I'm glad that I listened to him.
1: Th- that's, that's crazy that he's that young of an actor, but had, you know, that presence to think of that.
2: Yeah. He's like, he was 12 years old when we made the film and he was like 12 going on 40. You know, it was very much like working with an old soul. Um, he's a really interesting guy. Like I, I, never treated him like a child actor, you know, whatever that means. I treated him like a collaborator and an equal. Like he's the main character in the movie and it's all being carried by him. And I wanted him to be in the movie really badly. You know, when we were casting the film, the casting director, Carolyn Sinclair and producer Mike Manning and I, you know, we all make lists of actors that we dream of, who would we like to play this part? Um, And all three of us wanted August Maturo. You know, we remembered him from uh, Girl Meets World and the investors of this movie were really happy because he was in The Nun, which made so much money. You know, but like he's done a lot of independent films and he's a very singular, idiosyncratic, interesting actor. Uh, so he was, uh, you know, we made an offer to August and then we auditioned a bunch of other kids. Um, and the other kids, like, they, could, they could access some of the things we wanted. Like they could access rage or they could access sadness. But it's very hard for a 12-year-old child actor, even a very good one, to be able to do all the different things that are required of this character. Uh, and we knew that August could do it. You know, we knew that he was fully emotionally available for everything. Uh, thankfully he read the script and he really wanted to do it. It spoke to him. He felt powerfully about the the role. And the only other question I had after that was, is he going to be a brat? You know, is he going to be a little (laughs) monster? You know, is he, is he going to have a domineering stage mother? You know, and I had no, you know, there's no ability he lives in Los Angeles, he was named talent. There was really no way for us to check that. You know, we just had to trust that he would be okay. We knew he would be a great actor. Uh, And then after meeting him and meeting his mother, all those concerns went away because August really, really cares about acting. He is like an actor's actor who cares about the craft of acting. He cares about the character. He cares about being in the moment. He cares about being present. He cares about telling the story. Uh, And his mom was doing all the right things. I mean, she was extremely encouraging of his career while not pushing him in any way you know, she was there to support and encourage and be present for him to help, you know, and to be there for the movie. Uh, But I never felt her pushing him or prodding him to want to do something he did not want to do. He wanted to be there so badly. And uh, he was a great ally, you know, like he reminded me a lot of me when I was his age, where he was very curious and very smart and very well read and loves movies and all this stuff. Uh, And his ability to access difficult feelings without traumatizing himself was a great gift you know it's something i value in an actor is like i like to make films that are really dark and really disturbing with a lot of violence in them but i don't want to work in an environment that is violent and i don't want to work in an environment where if you're playing a character with ptsd you will inflict your ptsd on everyone that does not interest me because we have to live in the world of this movie for the duration of the shoot and we have to be able to go all the way into the darkness. And the way we, do all, the way we can do that is being, by being safe with each other, by being good dance partners with each other and taking care of each other. Uh, and like when the actors are slapping one another, we rehearsed all that stuff. And we had a great stuntman named Mac Kerr. And we did all that stuff to such a degree that they could play these slap face games without making contact with each other, making it look like they did actively through the power of stunt work but like they could play the feeling of attacking one another and they could play the feeling of hurting one another while feeling completely safe, which is very important to me because uh, you know, I, I intensely dislike a state of siege atmosphere. I don't like it when actors, particularly named talent, like yell at the crew or anything like that, you know, because often those people have all the power and those people are not gonna get fired, you know, because like the financing is based on them. Like the director will get fired before named talent gets fired you know, but I love it when actors care about the movie and care about the story and want to be part of the thing. Like Dan Hidea was very much like that. When he showed up, he asked a lot of questions. He, he's done 200 movies and he was basically like, I can play any version of this sheriff. Now tell me about your movie and tell me about slap face and tell me about the game that the brothers play and tell me about like what my relationship is to them. Because he, you know, dan Hidea when he's not acting is also a painter and he looked at this movie as a canvas and he was like how am i part of your mosaic like how do i fit into the world of your movie which i thought was extremely generous of him and that's the kind of actor that i really love working with the kind that you know where you're all we're all making the same movie and we're all in it together
1: that's awesome and uh, i gotta ask you about f- uh festivals because it seems like we always hear uh, for, from directors that when they go to festivals, they're nervous until the first screening of the movie, and then then usually after that, they're okay. Do you, do you ever get nervous with festivals?
2: No, um, you know, like I, I think it goes back to that thing that I said before, which is like once you know, we we've shot the movie, we've edited the movie, we've sound designed it, we've color graded it. Like if we if I'm able to finish that movie and I feel great about the work that we've done then I can say that is the furthest that I can go. Everything else after that does not belong to me. So while I love reading reviews that like interpret the movie in an interesting way, or people, you know, it's I, like, I prefer reading a, a review that likes the movie, than not liking the movie, but like, ultimately I let go, I detach. I say like, all right, now we're putting, now our only job is to put it out there into the world and talk about the film and like I I consider the interview process part of the process of making the movie more than screening the movie for the audience because you and I are having a conversation but like when the movie is screening in front of an audience I'm not having a conversation with them the movie is having a conversation with them you know it's up to them whether they like the movie or not and you know I mean you know there have been movies that I've made where I was unhappy with the result you know it's like there have been features that I've made right you know it's like man wish I'd done a better job with that. Um, you know, and if you read a review that says like, you could have done a better job with that. I'm like, yeah, I know. I, I wish I, I wish I had, <laughs> or I wish, or I wish the producers had listened to me and like done it a different way, you know, and you just have don't have control over some of that stuff. Sometimes I've been a work for hire director on all those other features and like those cuts were not up to me and to varying you know degrees of like, you know, it's like, I'm happier with some than with others, but you know, not, you know, like A lot of them were not really my story to tell. I was serving someone else's story. And with Slapface, like, I felt like when we finished making that movie, I, like, I told the movie that I wanted to tell the way I wanted to tell it with the actors that I wanted to work with, with producers who were there for me and cared about the project as much as I did. Uh, You know, it's like, I felt wholly creatively satisfied by the process. And I felt like whatever happens with the movie after this, you know, it's like, it's, I don't want to say icing on the cake, but like, you know, it's like, you know, what will happen will happen. You know, I'm not nervous about the reaction to the movie because they'll either like it or they won't, you know? And fortunately for slap face, you know, it's like the reviews have been predominantly really great, you know, and uh, the festivals have responded to the movie. I love that. Like a lot of uh, diverse audiences have responded to the movie in in wonderful ways, like children have really liked the film and queer audiences have really liked the film. And, you know, people of all different ages and, you know, social groups and so on. If like the film. I like, I like, you know, it's, like I said, it's like nice to read when critics interpret the movie in an interesting way that I hadn't thought of before. Uh, all that stuff is great, but like, you know, really like I will, I won't lie. Like it was extremely satisfying when shutter picked up the film because I love shutter. The thing I like about shutter is that like their programming, you know, you can watch shutter and you can see, you know, a movie like you know, like Terrifier, where you're seeing Art the Clown like wiping people out in wonderfully gory ways, you know, and like they're amassing a huge body count. And the satisfaction of that movie is watching that. And then you can also watch something like Jacob's Wife, starring Barbara Crampton, which is a satire that like gets into like the the deep underpinnings of like being in a marriage and making your relationship work. And then you can watch something like uh, The Last Thing Mary Saw or Hellbender. You know, where it's like a slow burn with deep, you know, characters, you know, uh, and, you know, Shudder's not paying me to say this. I just really like Shudder, you know, like, so when Face was picked up by Shudder, I, I took that as a total win because I thought Shudder has something for everybody. And, and you know, if, um, and if audiences want to see something like Slapface, they can find it on Shudder. And if they don't want to see something like Face they can watch Terrified. you know, it's like Shudder has it all. You know, and then there's people like me who like both of those things. You know, I choose both uh but you know it's like shutter, like the the reason that, that felt like a real win was because they really love horror movies, you know, and they really care about like a diverse palette of programming, you know, and like having a little something for everybody, which is the kind of company that I like to keep, you know but like having said that, you know it's like it's also been really great meeting people like the Adams family who made Hellbender, you know because we talked to each other you know I said, hey, what's your experience like hey what's the- you know we trade notes like uh, and um and they become colleagues and they've become people that we we ch- we share our experiences with one another you know and that's really really great you know like the horror you know the horror filmmaking community is indeed a community where like people do check in with one another and say hey what was such and such a person like to work with oh you know they were they were great or they have a substance abuse problem or oh they were they really didn't give a fuck about our movie once they cashed their check or whatever you know it's like it, it's great to be part of that like shutter you know in addition to like being part of a family of films has like you know opened other doors and other relationships with the filmmakers that i care about whose work i really like and we're able to talk shop about those things in a way that is satisfying
1: yeah we're, we're big fans of shutter like you said uh they have a wide array of, of movies on there and we're big fans of terrifier yeah. and jacob's wife yeah and uh, we want to thank you for coming on and talking about Slapface today. Uh, do you have any upcoming projects?
2: Yeah, I'm in post right now on uh, a feature that we shot a couple, like a, a month and a half ago, down in Savannah, Georgia. It's a film called The Boo Hag, and it's also a monster movie, but uh, it's kind of the inverse of Slapface. If Slapface is a, a New England, you know, tale of uh, of loneliness. Uh, the Boo Hag is, uh, is, is uh, steeped in Southern folklore and is a different kind of monster, the monster that inhabits other people's skin and hides inside of other people uh, and takes place predominantly within a very, very specific black community called the Gullah Geechee community, which is not represented very much in movies. There was a film back in the early 90s called Daughters of the Dust. It was a Sundance movie that took place within that community. But um, the producers had come to me uh, saying, we want you to bring your slap face thing to our movie that we've been trying to get made for seven years. And, uh, and I was like, well, this is such a rich, interesting folklore that I want to listen to and, uh, and help to represent, uh, and, and learn about, you know, uh, and we made that film in that community and we're in post right now it was shot, but it was made by mo- much of the same crew with slapface, and the editor is the same. So it's like a lot of the same people working on it, but a very different kind of monster in a very different kind of world. And being down in Savannah, Georgia, being a New Englander myself, felt like being on another planet. You know, it's like, uh, you know, I might as well have been, have been on, uh, on Mars or something like that. Like it's it's got a rich ghost-like, strange history. Uh, and much like the Overlook Hotel, not all of the history is good.
1: <laughs> that sounds awesome. and. Uh do you have any idea around when that'll be coming out or
2: we're aiming for October of this year? Uh, and certainly like once, um, once we've got it coming and we're doing the festival thing, we'll send out, like we have a, you know, we have a PR company working with us. So like certainly like they will help us get the word out to everybody and say like, this is what's happening. But yeah, I'll certainly like keep you guys posted because I really enjoyed this conversation and, uh, if the opportunity presents it, uh, itself for us to talk again about the Hag or something else, I'd be happy. To.
1: Oh yeah. We we'd love to have you on again. And uh, where so, can people find you online?
2: Well, uh, my name is Jeremiah Kipp and that's very easy to Google. Uh, also there aren't a lot of other Jeremiah Kipps. So I'm on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, and also if people are particularly interested in Slapface, they can follow the journey of that movie on Instagram and Twitter by uh, following Slapface film and on facebook uh, i think it's called slatface the feature film or slatface feature film because there's an archival slatface short film from 2017 if people are curious to learn about the short uh, the short is not currently available online but maybe in the future we'll uh, you know we'll drop that somewhere you know and people can see the um, where it all came from but yeah i'm active on social media and i like i like uh, i like the form of communicating with others on social media so you know instagram facebook twitter
1: and uh, yeah, we wanted to just thank you again for uh, coming on and talking with us. And uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. I
2: look forward to it.
1: Thanks to all the horror hounds and smokers out there for tuning in. And thank you again to writer and director of Slapface, Jeremiah Kipp, for joining us today. And uh, stay tuned. Uh, follow us online. You know, sign up for that newsletter and we'll have announcement of our next episode upcoming. And uh, make sure to follow us on social media Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok at High on Horror 420. Uh, you can always send us Puff Puff Ask Questions at High on Horror 420 at gmail.com. Uh, you can always submit questions via our website, High on And while you're there, sign up for our newsletter so you get our latest episode and guest announcements sent directly to your inbox. And uh, we just want to thank Josh again. Last week, our episode with John Stevenson, uh, there was a lot of problems. Uh, not not on John Stevenson's end; it was all all on our end. But uh, Josh managed to uh, put out a great episode. And like always, we'll have problems come up. And like I, I know, I'll talk to some of my close friends and be like, "Oh, this happened, this happened." And when they listen, they can't tell anything. And that's that's just a testament to how great of a Josh job that Josh does. Because if he's doing his job, you're not supposed to notice there was anything ever wrong with it to start
0: with. Exactly.
1: And uh, I think we're done being sentimental. He's still still a bitch, though. (laughs) We love you, Josh. And uh, I think that'll about wrap her up. Catch you later. Bye,
0: everybody.